Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to Caged In, as ever brought to you by the Breadcrumbs Collective and hosted by me, Petros Patsilibus. You're <laughs> worn out, you're, you're, you're starving artist, you're auteur under immense pressure of deadlines to try and get stuff done, but everything seems to be going wrong. On this episode, we're going to be talking about troubled productions, films for whatever reason, it might be the evil studio system, acts of God, or most commonly, the hubris of men led to chaos on film sets. Some of them are box office poison, others grand follies, and a mere few are some of the most celebrated films in cinematic history. Joining me to navigate these choppy waters is someone well-versed in box office flops. One half of the W-rated podcast, Claire Ellen Hope. How are you, Claire? Hello, that does sort of make it sound like I've had box office flops and I would only be so lucky. <laughs> you know, I, uh, I went to see the Fable movie recently and I remembered that I too, I don't want to be Spielberg, I wanted to be Dawson Leary. And Dawson Leary wanted to be Spielberg. So I felt like it real came full circle. And I was like, mm, bad times. I'd take a box office flop any day of the week. Oh, yeah, I'd, 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 the, the immense, the, the, like the immensity it takes to make a film. Like I would, I would, just getting it over the finish line. I imagine being like immensely difficult, let alone like making anything good. Do you know what I mean? It's like, um, so I feel like we need to, yeah, we need to get this out of the way and kind of. <laughs> you need to get it out. You I need to. I do. The demon. I do. Well, the, the the irony of this episode is, um, it is currently gone nine o'clock we were supposed to start recording this episode at 8 p.m through a whole host of laptop related issues the main one being my laptop is 12 years old or so um yeah it it just hasn't worked i i i feel like coppola i feel malnourished and dehydrated in the middle of the philippines right now but i am not i'm in a freezing cold shed in the back of my garden this is my apocalypse now 
Whereas I feel like Florence Pugh and Don't Worry Darling going, are we going to get this started? Come on, what are we doing? How long am I waiting here? How much do I have to drink before this is happening? <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to take over this. I'm going to direct this show, Petros. Get and, it on the road. And in fairness, the control freak that I am, we are now recording on my podcast platform rather than your one. That is true. <laughs> that is true. That is true. So, so yeah, this, this episode in itself is a troubled production. So <laughs> <laughs> appreciate the irony, guys, and hopefully you'll listen to the forthcoming however long this episode is to, mm-hmm. to hear about some 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 issues that are far greater than the ones that we're talking that that, that we've had ourselves. Um but what led what led me to want to talk about troubled productions is Last month, and it is, like, a better podcast would have been hot on the hot to trot and wheeled this out in. <laughs> we we were going to be quicker, and then we also delayed this, so we really have trouble. We have delays. Yeah, well, we production issues. Let's see what happens during the edit. Well, it, it it feels like I think if if you had the time, if do you know what I mean, if if this was your full time job to podcast, I could have easily researched. Mm-hmm four films in like two days but i also i I also have a life and i imagine you like 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 yourself so it's like do you mean we're 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 not we're not we ain't got that spotify money we can't just go hey we've got we've got an idea for an episode let's do it tomorrow let's be hot on the button um we're not quite ready to be the discount sean fantasy and amanda that is true we're we're not quite there that is that is well i think we very much are the the bottom of the barrel version at the moment because uh yeah they would have been like hey this has happened. Let's do an episode. It's out. It's out in two days' time. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Let's get Bobby Wagner on the phone now. Get 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 it <laughs> recording. Um, but yeah, it was the Francis Ford. Well, the rumors around the Megaropolis production issues. Uh, what what like? Did you read? Did you read about this at the time, Claire? What did you kind of? And what are they for people who don't know what the rumors were? So I found out about them through you. Uh, as where I get most of my Coppola <laughs> information these days, so all days. Um, and so, yeah, the rumours are as rumours go, both in terms of Mr Coppola's life and just in terms of movie set gossip, um, that there are mad, crazy issues going on on the Megapolis. Megalopolis. I can't, I'm never going to be able to go and see that film. Yeah, I just have the book a ticket online. Like that one. Point at the poster, and um, that there's loads of issues on the set that he has. It, some reports that he fired the entire art department. Some reports that they walked out. Um, reports that it's way over budget. That it's really under, um, you know, under time, under schedule, mm-hmm. um, behind schedule. Yeah, under schedule is what you want. Behind (laughs) schedule is what you don't want. (laughs) I'm a scheduler for a living, so I should really know those words. But, you know, (laughs) it it was a troubled start, and I did have a few whiskeys whilst 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 you dealt with our second few. Um, So the words are not flowing no more. Um, Yeah, so there's just all of these rumours, and I think it kind of, we can go into them more specifically, but as you said, like I wasn't so aware of them because I feel like, Every other day, there's a rumored issue on a set, or every other mm. day, there's reported reshoots, or every other day, there's an argument or a report of inappropriate behavior. And whilst I think some of these are important to be reported in terms of, you know, 
people having their stories heard and things like that like i'm very pro knowing about the vfx disasters at the house of disney because mm-hmm. that is important that those vfx artists get their voice heard and they're not dragged through the mud but i do think we know a bit too much about films these days yeah. a bit too much about film sets and again we can come on to it when we talk about some of the films specifically but it was such a joy for me to watch a couple of the documentaries about some of these films to find out absolute chaos after the fact watch the finished product Mm -hmm. enjoy the finished product and then see how the cake was made i want to go into the kitchen after i've eaten not before well i i i I, and i think and what we'll kind of realize as we talk about these films is that kind of as the film is kind of spiraling out of control in production really kind of clouds people's judgments of the finished product and like in some of these cases the finished films are like are great works of art like do you know what I mean like we're, and like kind of achievements of kind of technical ability and stuff like that whereas like people just get yeah bogged down in the quagmire and like one of the ones i'll be mentioning is heaven's gate which is a film that looks beautiful but has a lot and i stress a lot of kind of issues that went on with it but yeah so i i haven't seen that one and i didn't research that one but in our lovely shared google doc that we have uh i just kept every time i scrolled seeing more and more bullet points about animal abuse and i was like oh i'm very glad i didn't watch that one yeah we'll get on to we'll get (laughs) we'll get on to heaven's gate and michael chimino's wicked ways uh uh yeah that's (laughs) yeah it's kind of a litany of of animal abuse and um yeah well, well we'll get to it um what what do you like megaropolis do you like i i, I don't want to be like uh i don't know uh, a harbinger of dick but it feels like it's got a kind of couple of like horsemen of the apocalypse for your film kind of being a bit like dodgy to begin with in the fact that like despite kind of Ma- like allegations against Shia LaBeouf, Francis Ford Coppola has gone. Fuck it, I'm going with him. Like, yeah, you got John Voight, who's kind of ultra right wing, kind of a bit of a bit of a loon. He's he he's cropping up. You got uh, again allegations made against Dustin Hoffman. Like Coppola seems to be like, hey, like round up the gang, <laughs> round round up the posse. We're making a movie. And then there's you know my serious movie darling love adam driver like mr just he is out there like a pokemon catcher catching all the top directors in the world he's like if you were on the bfi top 100 i will be doing a film with you yes yeah, yeah, yeah. and like the fella's doing it but i'm like oh hon, maybe this isn't the one mm. maybe this is not the one have you seen any of the set on set photos for megaropolis at all i've been avoiding them and i try to avoid i'd like on my twitter i have muted like set photo and things like that because there are certain films, mostly kind of MCU superhero films, but there's just too much information. Mm-hmm. I kind of felt like if I saw one more set picture from the Batman during the pandemic, I might have killed someone. I just mm. I can't. I know he's going to be a bat. Just leave, leave it be. But <laughs> um, so no, I haven't seen them. I actually, up until you know, we were discussing this and we shared some docs. I actually didn't even know what the plot was, and I didn't realize it was a post-apocalyptic drama, or if drama is even the right term. And that also had my kind of, ooh, radar, because when was the last time we had a good apocalyptic drama? Yeah, well, it kind of, like, it kind of, I 
the premise of the film is like somebody trying to build a better world out of mm-hmm. out of the kind of rubble. And it was a film that again has already had its like production issues that like, was gearing up to be made in like 20 uh 2000 yeah 2001 kind of and that makes it it seems like a film from the 90s it doesn't seem like a modern film yeah well coppola's been talking about it since the 1980s that this is kind of like the film he wanted to make and i think the brakes got pumped on it uh around 20 uh, around 2001 because of 9 11 and it's like Mm -hmm. it's basically about new york York being destroyed and it's like this ain't the time and then coppola Floated with the idea, waiting for like the kind of proverbial dust to settle, for want of a better term, and kind of yeah, put put the project to bed in two thousand and seven, and then it was only two thousand and nineteen that he kind of yeah retooled it back up and was like, let's let's go, baby, I'm selling the vineyard to 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 get the budget for this movie. And my thing with that is like, in some ways, why fucking not? Like. He's bloody loaded. They have so much money and real estate. They're getting on of it. They're probably thinking of retiring. They're probably already thinking of downsizing. He's probably thinking about retiring yeah. in the distant but not so distant future. It's not like their kids aren't completely set up and completely <laughs> self-sufficient. You know, they're not thinking about, oh, I've got to leave a deposit for Sophia, otherwise she's never going to get on the housing market. They're not thinking that. Yeah. You know, everyone's sorted. So I guess for him, if you're thinking, right, well, in the next 10 years, we're probably going to sell up and we're probably going to, you know, put, hang the chair back up. Well, yeah, he's... Why not sell off everything and try and do your, your, you know, the one that got away? Yeah, I hate to be morbid about it, but he's 83 years old. Do you know what I mean? Yes. Like... So if he's not going to do it now, he's never going to do it. And I do respect that, you know, because there's a big deal. People being like, oh, you should never put your own money in it. You should never self-finance. Obviously, Coppola has been there and back again. Um, but you know, he doesn't. His kids don't need the money if God forbid he passes away. They're they're fine. I'm sure that they have life insurance policies. I'm sure his partner will be fine. And you know, do they need a multiple amount of vineyards in their eighties? God's yeah. not. You you I'm mentioned sure Sophia still has one. You you mentioned his 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 wife uh, Eleanor Coppola, who throughout this conversation we'll realise is an absolute gem of a woman yeah. like the most probably like the most supportive wife of all time um back in the like late 60s francis ford coppola made a film called the rain people and he basically loaded up his family so sophia would have like maybe just been born he's got roman who's like a few years old uh, G- gina carlo coppola is there as well they're basically in the back of a station wagon driving the length of the country filming a film in one of the other cars they've got george lucas who's filming behind the scenes footage for it like and that's kind of indicative throughout the whole kind of journey of his filmmaking career and yeah i feel feel like it's a perfect kind of segue to talk about like well coppola's yeah kind of history with troubled productions and kind of a, a director has always kind of put it on the line i always remember like a quote of him saying like well why why not just like risk it if you can like what's the point it's like if yeah if what you're not gonna if 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 you can't risk it all to get something made then why why make it at all in the first place that's kind of like like paraphrasing what he said which is kind of like admirable in a way like even if it is kind of 
I don't know, yeah. Selfish at the same time, like obviously you're putting other people's like like professions and names on uh, at stake for your kind of grand follies. I guess, yeah, because I was trying to think, like, who does it really hurt? But I guess, like, thinking of maybe a film that will come up later, like one from the heart, you know, I don't think a lot of those actors went on to have much success after that. So it, it can hurt people, absolutely. But, you know, it's his money. Every production is a risk. And I think I do, I respect his, like, his moxie, as mm-hmm. you might say, of I feel like he still respects film is this grand messy art form Mm -hmm. he's not he he refuses to subscribe to the you know not to keep bringing them up but the disney the mcu you know film by committee model and i love those films like i am like known for my love of anything that comes from those studios but films can be different things and i respect him kind of again sticking by his guns and going back to you know I want to make art and I want to make my story and it's a, a storytelling tool. It's not a content creator. Yeah. Well, what's amazing from him is he kind of like made his bones like through the studio system, mm-hmm. like kind of, yeah, in the sixties, he made a, he made a, a musical called Finian's Rainbow, which had Gene Kelly in it. <laughs> and um, he like, what, what he was doing at that time was basically filming throughout the day. And then like, stealing film and like like borrowing equipment on the weekend to make the films he wanted to make which which i think is really fascinating that like and obviously he's kind of like the first one over the top for what what got dubbed the new hollywood generation of these kind of group of directors who kind of went we're not doing it that old way like we're going to make films that are very much like uh director driven and like not so much like yeah because i'm I'm sure we'll get into the ills of the studio system with one of the picks on the list yeah um, yeah it's funny that he decided he didn't want that then decided he did want that then then yes not. <laughs> yeah, yeah 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 that is that yeah yeah that, that is something I, yeah that did did come to mind is he kind of wanted the the repertory like uh everybody working for the same studio but then yeah i don't think the full ills of like say I don't know, Mickey Rooney or uh, Judy Garland being paid like $35 a week or whatever it was to like kind of make movies like and have like, yeah, like you've just finished one movie, you're, you're starting filming the next one this afternoon kind of thing, like like when it was like real crazy stuff. Um, so before, yeah, let, let's talk about a couple of like, troubled Coppola productions but before we do I just wanted to play a clip of kind of Coppola's <laughs> yeah Coppola's views on what it was like making Apocalypse Now and this is from Cannes in 1979 so he's got the world's press there has he said this my, my film is not a movie my film is not uh, about Vietnam. It is Vietnam. It's what it was really like. It was crazy. And the way we made it was very much like the way the Americans were in Vietnam, 
We were in the jungle. On était au jungle. There were too many of us. We had access to too many, uh, too much money. On avait accès à trop d'argent. Too much equipment. Trop d'équipement. And little by little, we went insane. Apocalypse Now was <laughs> meant to be a 16-week shoot and ended up being 238 days shooting over two years and nearly <laughs> left Coppola bankrupt, nearly killed its lead actor. People's lives were basically <laughs> nearly ruined making this movie. Like, what, like, first of all, this is, the, you, you watch this movie for, for, the, for this episode. What did you think of it, Claire? Uh, a professor says by saying, I both don't like war films in general, so that's why I'd never seen it. And I got accidentally screwed over because someone at CEX put the wrong disc in the wrong box. And so I ended up with Apocalypse Now Redux, which, you know, there were different opinions on the internet, but is known by many as the worst car. Mm-hmm. Um, oh my God, it was so long. It was so long. It just felt like it would never end. And my housemate was in and out of the room for like the three hours or however long it was. And she just kept being like, what are they doing now? And I was like, they're still on the river. And what are they doing now? Now they're with some French people. What they And she kept walking in when there were like Playboy bunnies there. And I was like, I don't really understand the purpose of the film. Mm-hmm. It was me when I started reading around it and I realised like they're meant to be going down the river the whole time and that the river, whether they get down the river or up the river, you know, it's their descent into madness. And I was like, that would make so much more sense if they didn't keep getting off the river every five minutes and doing like a 20 minute segment with a load of people that never come back. Yeah. I know that there's obviously an element of that in the original cut, um, but the kind of all of the pacing was lost, all of the emotion, it, it was very stilted. It was mm-hmm. very stop start and it really struggled to hold my attention, which feels terrible to say mm-hmm. to the point that, by the time I got to the end, I was like, Jesus Christ, kill him, like, get on with it. And then I was like, we were like, is he going to go home now? We're going to have to watch 40 minutes of him going back the other way. <laughs> <laughs> but I then followed up with Hearts of Darkness and some reading and came to completely respect it after that. Mm. And so now I do, I had said like, oh, I'm annoyed because I know I won't go back and watch the theatrical cut. Having watched this, I'm not the kind of person, unless it's a film I adore, mm-hmm. that would watch multiple versions. Like, give me a director's cut of La La Land. I am there. <laughs> Most other films, I'll watch the theatrical and be done with it. Um, but watching Hearts of Darkness, which I found to be a far more effective yeah. film, the respect I had and the absolute absurdity of what went on, that they let it go on, that they survived it, and that they actually pulled out a decent even though it wasn't for me i can see where the cuts for the redux were i can imagine the original was quite powerful they they oh my god if that was me like i would have given up when the rain came yeah well like if you think as well yeah he had like a a six-year-old sophia coppola like running around in the rain which i think you see wife ever just like yeah we'll we'll come along we'll come to the philippines with the kids we'll hang yeah like whilst like multiple members of the crew are getting dysentery um martin sheen ends up having a heart attack at one point that was the one that i just i actually my housemate was in bed and i went into her room and i was like jenny he nearly died on the set yeah, yeah and there's like so that opening that opening scene i think i think his redux is the same with him in the mm-hmm. hotel room where like and the way that was filmed is pretty like 
Oh my god, yeah. Pretty fucking crazy because at the at the time like Martin Sheen was a massive alcoholic and kind of just kind of said to Coppola like let's do it. Like I I just want to I just want to film something. I want to kind of and Coppola's like we need to see that we need to see like the 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 multitudes of this character like how good he is, how like the darkness within him. And Martin Sheen like tapped into something like punches the mirror like that's him actually cutting his hand in the movie. Like it's not that kind of. It's the kind of thing that when I watched, when I was just watching the film, I was like, God, this is very self-indulgent. Like it's all of this needed. But then when you watch the behind the scenes, I was like, Oh my god, this wow! Like I can't believe that they got that from that. Um. So yeah, it it's insane that that was allowed. It's insane that like if you recorded me drunk, I don't know how much usable content you'd get. Yeah. <laughs> um so really great that like it was such usable content. The trust between Coppola and Sheen, and that's the thing as well. I think when we're talking about the Mega We're gonna have to like record me saying it ADR. A- ADR in like, like we'll find <laughs> out with some of these films. <laughs> gonna have to ADR me saying that in. I'm gonna have to train before it comes out. Um, but like where all these rumours have come out about him having problems with the crew and the crew walking out the actors have all come out especially Adam Driver and being like no it's a great set he's a great man I really love working with him I have such respect for him he treats us well we're doing something that's not troubled here and whilst obviously Apocalypse Now is an absolute nightmare the fact that so many of them stuck around for it Mm -hmm. and that Sheen and others were like that comfortable giving that roar of a performance not even a performance just giving like that control over and that raw emotion shows that whilst he thinks he's the worst director ever and he obviously has so many kind of, you know, oh my God, I'm going to die and this is going to kill me. And I, (laughs) you know, even if he doesn't think that, maybe he's not the most controlled director in the world. He's clearly an actor's director. Yeah. Clearly can form a bond. And he's clearly, he's he's a madman. The fact that he went to the Philippines with no clear ending of the film in mind, kind of like, writing it as he went along like i think that statement he made at Cannes is right like they went there and they lost their minds like at least they didn't do what the original people that were going to make it wanted to do and just go to vietnam during vietnam yes at least that one didn't work out yeah so originally it was going to be directed by george lucas and like i don't know why i don't know that much about george lucas but i could not see george lucas having a good time in vietnam john milius on the other hand i could see him absolutely loving it like i think he wanted to he's one of the rare people who wanted to go to vietnam and couldn't because he had asthma do you know what I mean? you need to get that captain america super zero <laughs> whereas like every like i think yeah every other director like coppola brian de palma they were all kind of finding finding excuses like to not get drafted do you know what I mean kind of can going to see psychiatrists and can we momentarily just picture a world where Brian De Palma directed Apocalypse Now well I don't think he'd ever do it there's no there's not enough women he's, he's a le- <laughs> he's a leery bloke Brian De Palma would love would like be like we need we need we need more women I do enjoy that the cut I had had the most women of any cut Mm-hmm. And I think there was still only four women, and at least three of them were sexually assaulted. So you know, couple are not like the women. I guess it's not. They probably weren't that. Many. Yeah, I think it's staying true to what was going on, <laughs> and like for all intents and purposes, I think a very kind of like embraces feminine energy. Do you know what I mean? And like kind of like 
I don't know, but yeah, like, <laughs> what are some of the what are some of the the craziest things that you learned about the the making of Apocalypse Now that kind of blew you away? I think it was just like the absolute sheer determination to just take what they could when they could find it, and it's like that almost like guerrilla filmmaking for mm-hmm. such a a big film with such a professional setup, such a professional crew and cast. The fact that they were like, let's just go out to the land and just film randomly. And, oh, we don't like the dialogue we have. Let's just let them roll. And like I mentioned earlier, like they had the monsoon and half of the sets got destroyed. And like that, obviously that must be devastating for like everyone involved. And the fact like fair play to them that they just went, let's let's embed it in. Let's roll with it. Like I love that. I thought that was so good. And that again is the mark of, he might be not polished and he might not be controlled, but that's a man that can see something and take it and make something of it. Yeah, well, there's like there's, there's things that happen on set. Like, so at, at the end, like the kind of mirror image of Kurtz being killed is kind of juxtaposed with like the... the yeah, we, that, that, that scene did not go down well in this house. Yeah, the local <laughs> people killing a water buffalo is something that the local people like... Were di- going to do. Were going to do. And they even said to Coppola, like, oh, would you, like, if you don't get it on the first take, would you like to us to sacrifice another one? And he said, no. Like, do you know what I mean? As much as, like, I think a lot of these films, especially when they kind of get into the weeds and get a bit crazy, there is, and it will be mentioned in one of the films um, on my list, is, like, abusing Indigenous people and kind of, like, like yeah falling into areas of like uh abusing their traditions and kind of exploiting them for well even in this in the hearts of hearts of darkness documentary they were talking about like oh well if we'd have filmed in the states we would have had to pay union fees for all of our workers but because we're here we can just hire anyone and like i don't think it's abuse because we're paying them a dollar a day and to them that's a lot and i was like oh god yeah why are you putting this to film yeah, there's very much like a mark of the time. Like, I, th- I think, like, not, 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 not to like Coppola's defense, but like he said, that's what they asked for. Like, that's like, yeah. do you know what I mean? Like, if, like, know your worth, as they keep saying to us women. Yeah, it's pretty, it's, 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 it's pretty mad. The fact as well that like he put his, he put his house and the rights yeah. for like his projects up on the line to make this film kind of. Kind of blows my mind, and it it, it it paid off in the end, right? It was kind of it absolutely did, and I just love that his wife was like, "Do you know what? Our life's a bit big. If we lose the vineyard, maybe that'll be okay." <laughs> and what's really sweet about Eleanor Coppola as well is, from obviously deep diving into the Coppola family, mm-hmm. is loads of her IMDb credits are for behind the scenes like footage on not just Francis's films, but like. Sophia's films, Roman's films, like she's kind of, she seems to be not just like, oh, let's capture it because it would be good, like press stuff. It's yeah. like, you can imagine it's, this is our kind of, the hearts of darkness for them is like, do you remember that like two year holiday we had in the Philippines? Like, let, yeah, let's, like let's kind of, yeah, let's kind of fire it up. Like, yeah, I'm, I'm sure she's got tons of footage that wasn't oh, used absolutely. for it as well. And I, I love that. And I think that's the thing, like you mentioned that it's for publicity purposes. Obviously he did kind of want her out there to film the making of, but this is also way before the age of like DVD extras. Now we've kind of lost that unfortunate great art form. Um, 
but like the fact that they as a family have the foresight to do that the fact that he trusts her to do that the fact that she's happy to just let it roll that she can you know she's married to the man they have children together I have to imagine like there's so much love there they've been together for so long you know when he is having those absolute meltdowns that she's got the recordings of she can see his vision even when he can't and I think that 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 support I think probably really did and you we mentioned or you mentioned you know the lack of women in the film and you feel that lack of a nurturing touch and I like to imagine she had a bit of a hand in being like okay everyone yeah. it's all right like we're all just gonna go and have a beer and maybe yeah. you know drop a little bit less acid yeah 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 <laughs> yeah yeah because we've got like you gotta remember guys near the end of this shoot we've got Dennis Hopper and Marlon Brando turning up who in themselves presented some massive kind of troubles for the production so you had Dennis Hopper who's kind of hopped up on drugs and I think like it's reported that they the crew had to essentially give him a constant supply of cocaine to keep him going like on the film and he refused to wash oh god he managed to get Lawrence Fishburne, who at the time was 16 years old, um, it's rumoured that Dennis Hopper got him hooked on heroin, like whilst they were filming yeah. this film. So, um, and then you got Marlon Brando, who obviously Coppola had approached, was one of the first people he approached, and he said, "Yeah, I want a million dollars a week. Mm-hmm. I want a minimum of like three weeks out there. Um, I want a million dollars up front." as well came to set hadn't hadn't read the script yeah hadn't read the book didn't want to be on screen because he put weight on and then like all of his scenes are basically improvised but again i love that like because i was listening to another breadcrumbs collectors podcast pcc podcast listening to their episode on it um earlier today and i loved because they're just so angry at him because like obviously he owes his late career to coppola and Mm -hmm. he should have some gratefulness and thanks but obviously you can probably twist that and be like coppola got his big starts by someone like brando deeming to be on the set of someone much less known so it's you know hand in hand but again, it goes back to that no matter what you might say about Coppola being able to stick to budget, stick to schedule, um, stick to sane reasoning, he knows his actors. And the fact that he got what seemed like a powerful performance out of Brando to then learn it's all improvised, that there was so much tension on set, you, that doesn't come across on the scene. It comes across as the tenseness comes across as this man being deluded and powerful and you know unhinged never you'd never imagine he didn't want to be there and I'm sure we've all seen films where the director and the actors don't get on and you mm-hmm. can sense the the mistrust on set and that none of that's there like Coppola does seem to be an actor's director well yeah there's reports as well that one of the weeks that Brando was in the Philippines uh, <laughs> Coppola just had to sit in his trailer and read him Hearts of Darkness. So Brando got paid a million dollars to be read. Basically got paid for like an audible experience by by Francis Ford Coppola reading him Hearts of Darkness. It's just not really fair, really, that we've gone past this in the world. Like, oh, I have to go to work. Like... <laughs> feel i mean do i want to go to the philippines for three months three three weeks some people would maybe not me 
But if I had air conditioning in the trailer and someone was going to read me an interesting book, I could I could get on board. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a, that's what we all want, right? Um, well, I I like I think there is a film there a film that's not talked about in Coppola's career that often. Like a lot of. <laughs> A lot of people don't even know it exists. But, like, I think is a perfect counterpoint to this film and the fact that it kind of... He kind of, at the same time, not tried to do everything opposite to what he did on yeah. Apocalypse Now, but then at the same time ended up making different all mistakes. The same mist- yeah. All the same mistakes. And different yeah. mistakes and kind of, again, put not just his personal assets up on the line, kind of put the jobs of people, mm-hmm. like uh, a, an entire studio, like on the line to make one from the heart. So you watched this film as well, Claire. I did. And what was really interesting for me, I watched one from the heart before Apocalypse Now. And then I did my research of both after having watched both. And I had no idea these were so close together in terms of being made. And that this literally was his response to the madness of Apocalypse Now. And he talks about that, how Apocalypse Now, they went out there and everything went mad and they had no control over nature and you know, they they were so far away from everyone and they just it kept rolling that he thought, right. Let's let's bring it all in. Let's let's have complete control over everything. Let's make Sewer Studios. Let's have everything combined and together. And yet somehow once again it turned into another folly of things going over budget and no improvisation and no clear structure and the plot wasn't finished and the mm-hmm. script wasn't finished. And I'm like, oh, you just did the same thing again, but like in reverse yeah and he started the film with like no fun like basically not enough money to get him through the first week and then kind of had to go out of his hat managed to find like a kind of oil tycoon from canada jack singer who managed to like (laughs) sling him a load of money and like asked people at his studio like do you mind being paid half your pay for the next like two to three weeks and like everybody kind of rallied around him because there's a great documentary called The Dream Factory, which mm-hmm. is about Zoetrope Studios. It's only like half hour long, but kind of shows you shows you the kind of optimism and kind of like I don't know, like how great things could have been if like Copla owned such belief in him. And I guess like if you're working, if you, if you, someone tells you the guy who did The Godfather and the guy that did Apocalypse Now is making his own movie studio. You're absolutely signing up for that. You're going, absolutely. And so, yeah, when he asked them to take pay, they were all going, absolutely, like, we believe in this dream. And, spoiler, it's very sad that the dream really wasn't worth it and did not pan out. Yeah, like, the whole thing teetered on whether One from the Heart was a success. Um in your eyes, in your eyes, kind of as, as a film, is it a successful film, Claire? In no way, shape, or form. In no, <laughs> it's so funny. Like again, having now researched it after watch, I didn't really know what I was going into. I had no idea what to expect, and it couldn't have been further away from what I expected. But again, having had that experience out in the Philippines for Apocalypse Now, he decides he's going to do everything on sets. Mm-hmm. He's going to build. Las Vegas indoors and he's going to build everything on a soundstage and everything's going to be recorded in this contained soundstage so that they can do whatever they want whenever they want because it's their town 
But whilst I'm sure during production, being out in the wild on location was a nightmare, it's also the best thing about Apocalypse Now that they are immersed. And whilst it's not the worst thing, in my opinion, one from the heart, everything feels like a set and it feels flat. It feels so... The colours, the lighting and the actual sets feel flat. And then it's not just, though, if... It's not just that. The actual writing and the the romance at the heart of the story, Mm -hmm. for me personally, could not have been less interesting. It was... I just wanted them to go away. I didn't (laughs) want them to be on my screen. Um, There's no chemistry and they're not enjoyable characters to Mm -hmm. spend time with so if it had gorgeous visuals but they were horrible characters at least you'd have something or if the story was amazing and they're using the sets rather than doing it on location but it falls flat completely on on both accounts there's there's no i don't know it just it was bad I, I i've got i've got a weird soft spot for it just because again i think it is this kind of like this grand folly and i think i do get wrapped up in the kind of the production of it and like i felt very sad after watching that dream studio documentary i felt so sad for everyone involved i felt so bad for how badly i reacted to it but it still didn't make me like the film and i'd never return to it but they that that dream factory doc and like really recommend people watch it on youtube everyone just has such hope and such belief and they have such dreams for both the film and the studio and oh it's so sad one of the talking heads in that um documentary is michael lerman the director of heathers who Mm. got his start working at zootrope studios along with a young david fincher that was like one of his first jobs in hollywood so it's like even though like things spiraled out we kind of got like these like great things out of it Jimmy. we got that's it. I do, I do, it was just the the wrong film it was the mm. wrong story and the wrong film for what he wanted to do yeah and i think like yeah you saying about like the sets and stuff like that and like coppola basically hold hold himself up inside of like an rv to direct as well like you're saying like that complete opposite of yeah. apocalypse now and it's kind of like it's sad in itself like and i think that is that is the ultimate thing of like copeland's career and like i think this is kind of like everyone talks about apocalypse now being like the 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 disaster it was i think like this is the true disaster in his career because i think that's it because apocalypse now was a disaster but fuck did it pay off and this was a disaster and wow did it not pay off I, i mean you'd know better than me how long between the ending of the wrapping of filming on Apocalypse Now to the start of filming on this? Like, what? What's that? Um. So this, like, it would have been like a year, like at least like a year or so, or like two years. So like, he's he's being haunted by the ghost of Apocalypse Now, and he's probably thinking, like, fuck, we pulled that off, but I never want to go through that again." Whereas it's like, oh, actually, maybe maybe you do thrive under pressure, and maybe your skill set is chaos rather than in well, your lovely utopian so it's studios with all your little child interns like the little like kid interns it was so sweet but i was like oh my god you had children working 
getting experience right but I was like of course it was stupid you were asking a 14 year old boy to advise someone on what romance is of (laughs) course this didn't work (laughs) and there's like and like just the sound of it it's like it was pushing for the four day week every Friday night was a big party like it sounded like the best time ever sounds of the party that's what struck me as well from the documentary they're talking about like there was always these parties every night and from four o'clock there were queues outside the door and they have footage of all these parties on the sets they look great where was that energy (laughs) in the actual film the actual film's so flat there's no energy so many of the scenes it almost like other than it's the dating of it you told me that was a covid production i'm like yeah makes sense there's so many scenes on a random fake set with just two people and a load of talking like, where was the vibrancy? I, I, I know you would hate me. You're probably going to hate me for saying this, but, like, I, I've, I've like, scoured the internet because I'm, I'm like, I am convinced somewhere in, like, my being that, like, Damien Chazelle has a soft spot for this film. Cause like, no, I could you. I would never have pictured it, but you had mentioned it, and I completely can agree. Like, La La Land is my favourite movie of all time. And I, I think, like, La La Land is, like, seeing this film and going, like, what if this was done right? Like, these kind yeah. of, like, two people who kind of, like, like, the beginning of La La Land is them in a traffic jam kind of basically yeah. hating each other. Like, she yeah. flips him the bird and he's kind of, like, disgusted yeah. at her. And then yeah. coming together by the end and like going apart in their separate ways. It's kind but of he did three things right. He found two leads that not only had chemistry but had had previously proven chemistry. This was their third film together, so obviously, and I know that wasn't intentional. It wasn't originally either of them in the roles. But that worked out greatly for all of us. He also does it on location. So mm-hmm. much of La La Land was filmed in LA, which is so important to the film. And in One from the Heart, he kind of implies that it wants to be this love letter to Vegas. I'm like, then film in Vegas. Yeah. Um, or at least do just some establishing shots in Vegas even. I don't know. Um, and then colourful. Like La La Land is so beautifully colourful, even just in its costumes. You know, the scene of the four girls getting ready and they're all in the primary colours walking down the street on their way to the party. Like, it's so vivid. Mm-hmm. And I know one from the heart, it's very hard to find a good copy of it. The copy I watched was definitely dated and did seem a bit washed out. But even still, it seemed very kind of dark and almost like seedy, which I guess maybe is a, a kind of thing well, I think, Vegas, I, Well, it's getting, a, it's, it, it, it's, it's getting a 4K restoration this year. I would be interested, not in watching it, but seeing some screen caps. Yeah, 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 yeah. I, 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 I think for the release of that, I may talk about. Uh, I may do another episode like this on on director's grand follies, just to kind of <laughs> it feels like it feels like the, the the perfect time to talk about that. But yeah, I think this is kind of like the the one like that really haunted Coppola. Like he he was basically paying this film off until nineteen ninety six. Well, yeah, there's like, I don't know if it's that same documentary or the other one, but it's like the next decade was spent doing for studio. Was like, pumping. So it just like flashes all yeah. of these films. I think it was right up until The Rainmaker, he was, he, he was, he was paying, he was paying it off. So like, and that like, I don't, he, he did, he did, he did, he did, he did some films that I love in that period. Like the Outsiders I for- and Rumble I had forgot I'd ever seen the Outsiders, and I was like, "Oh, I have seen more of his films. I love the Outsiders. I love that book. It was one of the first things I ever taught. It's a great, great yeah. book and a really good adaptation, a really strong adaptation." Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but again, I think you know, I had the discussion when I was talking about Apocalypse Now Redux online when I was watching it, and there are a few of us being like, "Whilst you can be the best director in the world, 
sometimes you do need someone over your shoulder just saying okay enough put the pen down and let me take it away yeah. so we've both worked in education and I'm sure you've had that with students where like they're doing a project and you can see they've got it to the best it'll be and they're like oh I'm just gonna add something else I'm just gonna change this and you're like no 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 I'm just gonna take that away yeah. right now instead Francis Ford Coppola presented Walter Murch with one I think it's like a hundred yeah like mm-hmm. 1.5 million feet of film yeah. like yeah. which is like I think to this day the record yeah. of the of of, of 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 length of film that's been filmed for something like and that's it and even with Apocalypse Now obviously he went mad and had his own stuff but I think there was a little bit still of studio kind of overlooking whereas with One from the Heart he was in his own place he was his own money he didn't have to take orders from anyone and I think we all we all need a bit of accountability every now and then and maybe he needed just another pair of eyes. Yeah, yeah. I think so. <laughs> I think I, I, I think I think I think that case could be made. Um so yeah, obviously he, he had some other issues. Like we could get into the cotton club, but that's more like he's more of a hired gun on that, and that just kind of the legal issues around that are more kind of fall on Bob Evans and some other players in that. But like again, I think throughout the 80s there's kind of films that for whatever reason there's really heartbreaking there's a film called gardens of stone and like coppola did an interview like in the last five years discussing that film and it happened just after the the death of his um his son G- yeah gina carlo coppola and he basically says like he doesn't really remember making that movie and like i think like that's another one that kind of yeah didn't have major issues but like kind of i don't know was a bit of a yeah it kind of kind of kind of had its problems but that was more coppola was basically in grief making a film like and it's 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 somewhat unfair again it goes back to my point right at the start of the pod of i think we know too much mm -hmm. you know i have terrible days at work and everyone knows i have terrible days at work because i'm a moaning bitch and i tell everyone realistically most people in the world don't know I've had a bad day at work. I don't have to disclose that to future employees that for one week in January, I did everything wrong and everything went wrong. and It was a terrible time and everyone was mad at me because I still get my paycheck at the end of the day. No one's judging me as long as I fix my mistakes. But because of this industry, because it's his name at the top of the call sheet, everyone knows that, oh, well, it's another couple of production. Oh, it's another couple of production. And like, the man still consistently makes cinema. The man still consistently in like, although he hasn't had a hit in a decade, but then who has had a hit in the last decade, to be fair? And, you know, hello, Simakis. Um, You know, he's still consistently working. He still pulls it out of the bag. Not every day is going to be your best day. Yeah. Not every day is performance review day, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And I think, yeah, I've, I think... I, I think it's just fascinating that he like he did it right he like kind of he kind of made the gamble and it's like i don't know i i, I do get the impression sometimes that he's like oh, if i could have i would have maybe had a better script and zoetrope studios could have continued but yeah hey. and i think i think it would have if it, just any other film it just was the the wrong cast the wrong script and the the wrong production hey do we do we get the, do we get the great bram stoker's dracula if, I think that would have worked on Summertrope. I think that would have worked on sets. Yeah, that. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, yeah, that pretty much is sets, right? Like, yeah, 
that could have been a slower trope. And I, 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 I mean, it, it's a lot of uh, choices made that weren't in the book, but <laughs> I enjoyed it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But I don't think we get that film if we didn't kind of have those years of hardship. Like, yeah. For for better or worse, we don't get the Godfather free. Where he's like, I really need to pay off these fucking debts. Let's just go back to the well on that one. <laughs> yeah, I didn't realise that was such a you know job for job for cash a sellout yep. project. I had no idea it was such because I know it's never been regarded in the same league as one and two, and that obviously lots of people have lots of issues with various elements of it. But I didn't realise that he like didn't even want to do it. Yeah, it's basically like one of the first legacy sequels. Do you know what I mean? It's like, mm. what, it's 20 plus, it's, yeah, it's nearly 20 years after the original. Oh, again, like, so my, I don't know why, this is my third appearance on the Coppola Connection podcast, <laughs> and, you know, I don't have a bloody clue about Godfather. Um, I don't know why you keep having me back. Um, but, yeah, I had no idea, no idea. From a folly in the jungle to a folly in the studio, Let's go to a folly at sea with your first pick, Claire. What 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 are we going to talk about for some of you? Yeah, one of your favourite kind of onset fiascos. I think it's after Apocalypse Now. It's one of the most infamous ones, and similar to Apocalypse Now, it had a happy ending. Uh, let's talk about James Cameron's epic 1997 romance historical disaster movie, Titanic. Um, yeah, I mean. What a picture, you know, up there in <laughs> top 10 films ever made. At the time, though, it turned into the most expensive film ever made. You know, Coppola got his record for the most amount of film used and Cameron <laughs> got his record for the most amount of money used. Yes. Um, but, yeah, as I said to you, I think that there are quite a lot of kind of parallels that can be drawn between Cameron and Coppola. Cameron has his own history of ending up in the press because of his behaviour on sets. In a different mm -hmm. way to Coppola, it's not normally that Cameron sets, though Titanic was in the headlines for running over, you know, Cameron gets into trouble because he often does run over and he is very controlling on sets and, you know, people threaten to walk out and crews don't like him very much either. But it seems to be... in where Coppola is, we're all artists and let's just experiment and let's see what happens. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Cameron's very, this is my set, this is what's happening. If you don't like it, yeah, there's fuck the door. It. Yeah, 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 yeah. Which is very interesting considering the amount of absolute bloody chaos that went on in Titanic. I'd hate to imagine how many people would have died in the production of this film if you didn't have someone who was so in control as it seems Cameron is. Because shit went wrong. So what, what 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 did go wrong? Like this is a film that, as we're talking, I think is gearing up for what like a twenty fifth anniversary. Yeah, like twenty. Is it twenty? Yeah, is it nineteen ninety eight when it came out? Ninety seven, at least in US, so maybe it was ninety eight in the UK. Yeah, but it's getting a yeah. So it's getting a it's it's, it's getting like a IMAX. It's getting like a IMAX re release, like rejig, and I think Cameron as well. I've got I've got I've got to say this. I think he's finally admitted that Jack could have fit on that door no no he's admitted he can't <laughs> that, that article he said they couldn't that they even tested it i don't Amazing. know why i'm so i don't care about that debate why am i so aggressive <laughs> <laughs> so yeah so what what did go wrong with titanic because obviously yeah for, for years was like one of the highest grossing budget movies yeah you know, highest grossing movies of all time yeah, so, I mean, production overran for a myriad of reasons. So the number of filming days went from 138 to 160, which, you know, in comparison to Apocalypse Now, 
doesn't seem as many, but that's just actual filming days, not pre-production, post-production and all of that. Um, I mean, during those production days and those filming days, there was a drugging incident. There was a few drowning incidents. There were quite a lot of broken ribs, broken bones. Um, so, I mean, we can start with the infamous drugging, if you'd like to go there yes, first. Yes, yes, please. Like, yeah, 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 yeah. Let's get what so, happened. As part of the film, an opening is set and as a Canadian fisher crew go and search for the original Titanic wreck, which Bill Paxton is part of that crew. And just one day on set, someone still unknown, still at large, just decided to dump a load of PCP in the clam chowder that they were having for lunch from the uh, services. So everyone was just super fucked up on PCP and the whole cast and crew from that day had to be hospitalised overnight. Wow, that is... <laughs> uh, yeah, they still don't know. There was an investigation. They still don't know who did it. Uh, but Bill Paxton has done some great uh, interviews on it. There's a Larry King interview he gave where he talks about it. Um, and he said, you know, they were all quite hyper. Some of them were very sick, but most of them were just super fucking high. And there were some, like, wheelchair races and all sorts of nonsense going on in the hospital. Uh, Cameron, apparently, when he realised what was happening, rumouredly went and made himself vomit so that it wouldn't have as much an effect on him. Um, But it sounds like that was, you know, chaotic, to say the least. Massively. Yeah. Massively. Like, I can't even imagine, like... Did they did they try and film on the PCP or did they like catch no, it? No, nice so I think it was on the lunch break and people just weren't like people were still just taking time at lunch and kept going back for like more and being like, God, this come child is amazing. Gonna have my third bowl. And I think that's the point in which someone was like, I don't know if we're well. Yeah, I I, I don't even know what the effects of PCP are, but like. I don't know, but I'm allergic to shellfish and shellfish makes me really like my allergy. I've only ever had it very limited with lobster makes me super drunk and really loopy. So I imagine if I had lobster bisque spiked with PCP, I'd probably die. <laughs> Jesus Christ. What, so so what, 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 what else happened? So was this, was this early on in the production or was this kind of like midway through? Um, I believe that was quite early on because it was a different set. It was This was not any of this stuff on the boat. Mm-hmm. This was none of the stuff with Kate and Leo. So I do think that was probably quite early on, a different set, a different crew. So then we have the stuff with Kate. Poor Kate Winslet was, like, bashed and bruised from this film. So she got tons of injuries, um, you know, just from bashing around because those scenes where they're trying to escape the boat, you know, that's a real set. And it turned out that... Some of us, they hadn't really thought when they were building the set about how that set might go when they submerged it. Mm -hmm. And so the Grand Staircase, which is synonymous with the film, when that was submerged for the the flooding scenes, it was made out of steel and all the steel lifted and started going mental. And that specifically trapped two crew members and they nearly drowned trapped underneath the stairs. Um, At one point, there's a scene where Kate and Leo are trying to get through the grates when they're running through the bows and, like, all the gates are locked. This one happened between takes, so the the take ended and they cut the gate open for them to get out and get some towels. And uh, Kate's coat got caught on it and she got caught under the water. And everyone has yelled, cut, so no one was really paying attention. Cameron didn't notice and she was there 
kind of drowning and I'm not sure if she got herself loose or someone got her loose but she was so scared of Cameron on set and he was so strict and so controlling that she didn't tell him that she had just you know nearly died and they just you know he was like are we all ready for another take and it took him like two more takes to realize you know something's not quite right with her but he was like well Use it in the scene. Use the emotion. I guess that's why, uh, like, maybe he said to Kate Winslet, "Oh, do you, do you like? Is she in? Is she in Way of Water? I, I have no idea yeah. who's actually." She in that. got a Guinness World Record for holding her breath underwater in Way of Water. So I think having she took something from this set. Yeah, like, <laughs> like that. That that is how addictive of like how much I remember of that film. And like, I had a realization walking out of Avatar Two. Is like I was like. I don't know which actor played like which character mm-hmm. in it, and then oh, I, I then I remembered like I don't actually remember any of the character names, so I can't even like match it up like when I'm looking on IMDb. <laughs> no, I had heard that she was in it, watched it, completely forgot, and then like a day later, I was like, "Wait, was Kate Winslet in that?" And I had to Google who she was, and you wouldn't know. But good for her, you know. <laughs> he ne- she nearly di- she nearly drowned on one of his other sets, so this time, you know, she set a world record for being able to hold her breath or something insane and she's got hypothermia because the tank that they were filming in was so big um like tons basically the whole crew most of the cast got colds flus kidney infections because there was so much kind of water-based scenes it was like really cold and kind of somewhat dangerous shoot so that meant that loads of crew members were dropping out there was a real revolving door this all kind of got fed to the press the thing the issues with the boat during the submerging scenes of the set of the boat kind of got to the press as well so it was very much linked to there were hollywood knew and the world knew that stuff wasn't going quite right the screen actors guild had to do an investigation because of the concerns but they said it was safe enough uh, no it, no inherently unsafe finding this was the official ruling um but because it was so over time and over budget cameron did make a deal to take less of his original pay cut and um, because he knew that a lot of the reasons were his fault um and you know he gives this great quote i'm demanding i'm demanding on my crew in terms of military being kind of militaresque i think there's an element of that in dealing with thousands of extras and big logistics and keeping people safe i think you have to have a fairly strict mythology in dealing with a large number of people and like fair play to him because you know everyone was so scared of him and they didn't want to tell him when things were going wrong but can you imagine like a less controlling dedicated director mm-hmm. on a set where you've got 100 200 extras in the water getting kidney infections getting hypothermia another director would just completely lose the plot. I I think there's a reason he's known as one of the best because, again, he does his job well. Yeah, he's like kind of, he does have like a no-nonsense approach. I I recently listened to an interview with him and Guillermo del Toro for like the Directors Guild like podcast. And kind of like, seems like he has like a a little bit of a sense of humour, but at the same time, it, it feels like if he's not in the mood... And I imagine it like that being on set, like if 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 he's under the wire, he like Big Jim is going to be like, we need to get shit done now. I'm not taking any prisoners. 
Yeah, like I'd imagine that sense of humour doesn't come out until the rap party. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then he's going, like, who hey. the fuck is this fella? Where's he been? Yeah, 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 yeah. He's like, hey, remember that time we all took PCP? Hey, <laughs> we're pretty, pretty, probably bit like on his deathbed, he'll be like, the PCP was me. It was a big <laughs> prank. <Hey." laughs> oh, um, but yeah, it was, you know. There was lots of things. I think it cost over 200 million. So they were saying that it was a million per minute that they needed to make back. <laughs> and, um, you know, Fox ended up having to pay with Paramount to release it because it had cost so much. They didn't think that they'd be able to share the costs of distributing it. And I don't know if anyone knows this, spoiler alert, turned out to be at the time the you know, highest grossing film ever made. So I think it worked out. Yeah, I think I think it was that that that, that thing of at the time was such a risk right because it was such the most expensive film it was like and it was his folly and everyone was saying like why is he doing this because at the time he was still kind of known for his like sci-fi or his macho man and here he is doing this delicate little historical romance and why are we letting him do this and why are we letting him take so much money but the man knew yeah and i think i think like from kind of as his career and as he gets to do more of what he wants to do i think he's just a big old softy at heart mm-hmm. like like as much as like I kind of didn't take to, I didn't take to the water of the way of water. Uh, I like I could just see there's just a big old heart at the center of it of like it's just he just loves family and stuff like that. <laughs> like, I think that's it. He loves family and he just fucking loves the ocean. Like he just he wants to be like a mermaid or a fish or a seahorse or whatever it is that he wants to be, and he just loves nature and loves love, and yeah. You know, he started his career with aliens and robots, and it's tell me, it's, I can call Terminator a robot. Um, yeah, he's a, yeah, he's a robot. Yeah, yeah, he's a robot. <laughs> I just felt suddenly bad. I felt like I was really kind of underselling yeah. Terminator. Cyborg, <laughs> robot, whatever. I think, I think it's all semantics. If you get down to it. But yeah, and I think again, he can he can see. He, so I think Coppola's kind of skill is taking the madness, taking grand scale, and seeing madness and pulling out the story from within the madness. Whereas I think Cameron's skill was taking the most simplistic thing, boy and girl fall in love, you know, family seek safety, and just then making the stuff around it so built up that you almost forget how simple the story is. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's kind of, and I, and I like, I love the fact that I keep, I keep mentioning werewolf, but there's like, there's like, almost like gr- a greatest hits element to like the end mm-hmm. of that film. There's, there is yeah. like a sequence. It's like, Oh, I'm watching like Titanic all of a sudden. Yeah. Right. It's like, let's, yeah, let, let's revisit that. Or like, Oh, I'm, I'm watching, I'm watching Terminator. Like I've got kind yeah. of got this like character who's just like, cannot be stopped. And like, yeah. One man, one mission. Yeah. Um, so let's move on to my first pick. Let, 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 let's come away from the sea and go to dry land uh, mm-hmm. to the to to the town of sweet haven with robert altman's 1980 film popeye you watched this film claire did i know what did, did you I? what did you think of popeye i watched this film on my phone whilst very drunk walking through an airport and sitting on a plane in the sky and honestly, if you told me that I had imagined the whole thing, I'd believe you. Because this film made no sense. <laughs> and I didn't really know what was happening. 
and I didn't really know what was being said and I couldn't really follow the story and I got to the point where I was like I don't think this is because I'm drunk I think this is just because this is the film and it was I think we mentioned it up top you know sometimes you just get to the end of something and you're like we were talking about you know how we take a flop just the absolute pain of getting a film out there it's so difficult I feel like god bless them they probably got to the end of this shoot and they were like do you know what it's done just get it done i just want to move on i just want to do a different project well i think for all intents and purposes they had a lot of fun making it so like oh good robert altman is kind of known for like lots of people and like this kind of has like from from stuff like nashville and um Oh, he did he did a western people are probably shouting at me right now uh but like yeah he did like a western set movie oh, the title will come to me probably <laughs> the dead of night <laughs> uh but he, he has this weird thing where he just like he records everyone he's kind of mics up everyone and just plays them all at like a similar level and i think he carried that on over to popeye but like and it did not work in popeye because i was like whose story is this <laughs> It's pretty, like, and, well, let's get into, like, (laughs) let's get into some of the issues of this film. Like, the first thing is, this film is filmed on Malta. Well, Malta is basically a large rock. Um, There is no indigenous wood to Malta. So just to build the sets of this film, they had to ship all of the wood from the Netherlands they had to build 19 structures, a hotel, a schoolhouse, a post office, a church, a sawmill, a tavern, casino, gangways, boardwalk, sheds and timber shoots. That all worked. So everything worked. So the production designer on this absolutely like did a bang up job of kind of creating Shout Sweet Haven. Shout out to them. Um, yeah. And uh, yeah, <laughs> uh, so there were 100, uh, yeah, there were uh 1000 log uh, wooden planks 8 tons of nails and 2000 gallons of paint i love that kind of fact with this film that like <laughs> that's what made it and they had a 200 and uh yeah a 250 foot breakwater to make sure that the town did not wash away and the town is still there till this day but i like, do love that they thought about that though cuz that is not something that i would have thought about <laughs> But where things start to, like, go wrong with this film is... <laughs> so I guess I guess it falls on the feet of Robert Altman and the kind of sets that he keeps. Every night when they had dailies, uh, Harry Nilsson, who wrote the songs for this film, would perform a party, would, like, perform a show for them. He was out there recording the music with them. It would turn into like just a full-on shindig there's like yeah people got people got married because of this film people got divorced like babies were were had because of this film like it it got to it got to that kind of like level of (laughs) it got to that (laughs) camaraderie um the shoot was 147 days so you think for 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 a kind of uh, a kind of fluffy film like they were financially struggling throughout the production. So Michael Eisner, 
brought on Disney to co-produce the movie halfway through. This is one of the rare movies that doesn't seem to appear on Disney Plus and seems to be locked in their vault for like forever by the looks of it. I mean, they're not, they're not wrong. <laughs> um, and I think one of the, one of the best stories uh, from this is, so the producer on this is Robert Evans, who was one of the producers on The Godfather. He was the head of Paramount Pictures at one point. Um, so he came over to Malta to be like, to see what was going on. Like, like, yeah, just kind of be, be amongst it. And <laughs> he had a trunk that let's just say was full of cocaine that went missing. And he had to, <laughs> he had to call in a favor from, I think he was like the Secretary of State, Henry Kissinger, or like the former Secretary of State, Henry Kissinger, to write a letter to the Maltese Prime Minister to ask him to look for the case, but at no means look through the case. Amazing. So Bob Evans could get it back. Uh, at times, like through the shoot, they were through the props, so like dummies and stuff like that. They were smuggling cocaine onto Malta so they could continue the party. You had... Are you telling me that this whole film was actually just a drug running front makes the film itself make so much more sense? Yeah, it's like everyone, it, it, was, just a, it was just a massive party. And you think Shelley Duvall would have come straight from the set of The Shining, another troubled production yeah. where she had a particularly terrible time. Yeah. So I think a party in the middle I of. I hope the... Robin Williams like was nice to her. I'm sure uh, he was. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure he was. He yeah. was. He was off I feel his like face. She needed that. <laughs> he was off his face on on cocaine the whole time. Uh... <laughs> it's so funny though because we've mentioned like Damien Chazelle and Babylon and La La Land, and like one of the things in Babylon is how you know in the swinging twenties and during the like the silence, you do, the film opens with this party where there is just that room full of drugs and there is just a big chest full of coke and. The film kind of supposes that they lost all the glamour and the fun of filmmaking when it moved to the talkies. So, you know, it's great to know that back, back then <laughs> it came back round. Well, I think what they had to do was go to the other side of the world so they didn't have the prying eye of the studio yeah. to kind of, like, see what was going on. Um, they heard about all the acid they were dropping on Apocalypse Now yeah. and they are like, how can we do this but less scary and no one gets eaten by a tiger? Yeah, and there's like there, 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 there's there's so many issues with this. It kind of um, they realised pretty soon on, or like kind of late in the day. Yeah, I think it was late in the day that nobody could understand a single word that Robin Williams was saying. Nope, not a clue. And uh, I, I I know that they they tried to fix it. It didn't help. So every one of his lines is ADR'd. Um, all of the songs, like for most part which like they try to record them live again yeah, and it, they they're so quiet the songs are so quiet and there's no bluster to them i didn't even realize as the songs were playing i was like wait are we in a song is this is this a musical and it's mad because you would think like we we all know how to do musicals and it's so quiet mm-hmm. there was there was issues as well that they had with uh, robin williams's arms so he has like the, the famous Popeye arms. <laughs> they like started to basically like turn yellow in the sun 
and like they had to get they had the like de- degrading on his arm so that to get somebody like a Maltese woman to basically make new ones for him that to like kind of change it up and like hand punch all these hairs and it was just like a real a real fiasco to do it again like they like disney finally caught wind of what was going on with this film and said like you have to wrap up the film now and like the popeye party has to end the planned ending of this film was popeye and bluto tearing a ship down as they fight but they had no money left in the budget so the film kind of as you would have witnessed kind of just just fizzles out and ends right like say like it it never built up to anything either in its defense (laughs) yeah but yeah it's it's very episodic and it's very weird and that's the thing it's it's one that i find like it's something i watched weirdly a lot as a kid Mm. and have an affinity for it like the songs like the soundtrack album absolutely love like i love Mm -hmm. I love Shelley Duvall's He Needs Me. I just think that's such like a beautiful song. And I think I even love it more with its use in Punch Drunk Love, the Paul Thomas Anderson film. It's kind of peppered in the soundtrack of that. And like kind of a, a film that I think is like a, as a massive Robert Altman fan that PTA is, I feel like that's his kind of weird love letter to Popeye. It's like, I'm going to take a comedy actor and put him in, some a, a genre that you wouldn't expect like robin williams with the musical and adam yeah. sandler with a kind of i don't know offbeat romantic comedy drama and it's like i'm gonna use that song as well <laughs> <laughs> no i do it makes me have a much better appreciation for the film now that i know it was just fucking great crack and the reason it makes no sense is because they were all just drunk and high and living their best lives i'm like well then fair play because I respect a workplace that is fun and I respect people that don't break their backs because at the end of the day, it's just a job and none of you are heart surgeons. So like yeah. fair, fair fucks to them. But I think, Glad they had fun. I think Robert Altman as well, like kind of, I don't know, had a bit of a, a disregard for his own family. So the baby in this film is his own grandson. Ah, like, and he's you know, got his he's own grandson to get him a start in the industry. Hanging off a crane at one point, I believe, in this film. I did. I was very surprised how much of the baby stuff was a real baby. And I did think, wow, this would never get made today. So interesting that it was done in Malta, where I'm guessing health and safety rules are a lot laxer, and that it was a child from within the family. Yeah. So he can just be like, no, it's fine. So, anyone who lis- listening as well, um, you can actually go to Popeye Village Malta. Uh, my sister went a few years ago and sent me some photos and I was like, wow. Like, and it's kind of uh, saying to Claire earlier before we started recording, it's like one of the weird like bucket list. I have a very short bucket list of like places I want to go. And this is one of them just because I think it's such a weird oddity. And I imagine like the, the ghosts of that production probably mm-hmm. still are still lingering. I, I would want to. They- the chest of cocaine because we could go and look for that yeah i feel like that's the yeah 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 that's the, i'll go i'm gonna be a little bit like say where, where did harry nelson hang out where where's robert altman's office maybe there's like a booby trap like door or something or there's a there's a there's a loose there's a loose like floorboard or something yeah <laughs> rob evans's secret stash amazing so I, I think i love that you also said you can get married there i do can. i am i don't really enjoy weddings um but i am gonna need someone to get married there so i can go or at least just look at the pictures definitely definitely 
any potential suitors for me that's that's what's going to happen we're getting married at Popeye <laughs> Village Motor okay um don't all don't all clean don't, don't all flood the don't all flood the inbox all right wanna... <laughs> hey be lucky you're not a woman on Twitter the inbox is always flooded <laughs> never good I'm sure I'm sure there's going to be a drought in my inbox of women wanting to get married at Popeye Village let's be honest here um so yeah that that's kind of it for Popeye's a, a fun disaster and the film itself uh, is a bit of a mess but I think it's got some charm to it at mm-hmm. the same time and like I don't know like I wish it was as fun as the as set the sounded yeah 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 yeah. I yeah. think this is a case of they had too much fun <laughs> and a lot of things do did go wrong but like yeah, we've all done a hungover shift and it sounds like the whole film was a hungover <laughs> shift <laughs> so where are we moving to next claire uh let's move to a not fun production a not fun film and one that ended up with some jail time yes, uh, <laughs> i'm talking uh rollerball 2002 not to do a little self-plug but if you want the deep dive on this film we do have a w-rated episode about it so i won't go too far into it but for those that don't know it's a remake of a 70s film uh remade by director john mctiernan who you might know from such films as die hard um so they decided to remake this film mctiernan McTiernan is the what's the what's the phrase you know the the creator of his own downfall or whatever that phrase is mm-hmm. because he he really just set himself up for some falls here. Uh, there was a brilliant first draft script. Everyone in the industry said it was brilliant. It was a great remake. It really updated. It perhaps could have been better than the original. He didn't like it. Didn't have enough action. Threw it out. He wanted the film to be like WWE and he wanted to have loads of action. There were multiple redrafts. He put an intense focus on the fights and the showmanship. He changed the character. He changed the ideology of the film. So the film ended up being something completely different. Um, When it was test screened, it was some of the most negative test screenings ever. Um, People were very angry. They said it was really violent, really grotesque, and just really terrible. With some people even saying it's so bad, they wish they'd kept it that bad, because at least it would have been a thing. (laughs) Um, at this point, MGM had got a new head of marketing and distribution, who could, uh, Robert Levin. He convinced McTiernan to go and do a load of reshoots and re-edit the film and get it right down to a PG-13 so that they could just do a wide release. I think they knew they had a stinker on their hands. Mm-hmm. Let's just get some money. One of the great reshoots is a infamous night vision scene. So if you've not seen the film, just randomly towards the end of the film, there's just a chase sequence in the desert that the whole scene is filmed through night vision goggles, <laughs> despite the fact that no one in the scene is wearing night vision goggles Amazing. and there are no night vision goggles. The worst part being, this sounds like, oh, they, they fucked up. They actually shot it and realised it was so dark they needed, they had to spend a load of money to go back out to the desert and reshoot this scene because they had fucked up and it, they couldn't see it because of the darkness. They then, when they reshot it, made all the same mistakes and the second reshoot was still so dark that they still couldn't see anything. So someone somewhere in an editing suite just went, fuck it, throw a night goggle, night vision filter over the top of it and we'll just say it was a stylistic choice. So there's just a random five-minute sequence in the film that's completely green 
and makes no sense. It reminds me of like people's profile pictures on like Bebo that were done in that kind of like not so much night vision, but like you know, like I don't know what like UV, like opposite mm-hmm. colors, kind of like yeah. like kind of really washed out, weird, like yeah, like almost like looked like a picture on a on a Nokia screen, like that kind of like yeah. that kind of colorway. It it just gives me mad, and it's because I used to be a film teacher, but mad like year eleven project vibes. Like mm-hmm. so many of my students would do something, and they'd have all this footage, and they wouldn't have an ending because they always fucked up filming their ending, and they'd be like, "Fuck it," and they'd end up making some weird slow motion black and white montage to end it. It would just be like <laughs> the villain walking towards the screen, and they'd be like, "Fuck it, that'll do," and this just stinks of that. <laughs> but um. Yeah, so all of this happened, very bad. Uh, part of the reshoots, tons of reshoots, tons of re-edits. They took out all the nudity. In a lot of the scenes, they digitally changed the blood to look like sweat. Just lots of, you know. And the final product just is not a good film. It's just not It's not there. Um, but the real disaster actually came in 2013, a mere 11 years after the film was released, when it turned out that John McTiernan ended up having to do a little stint in federal prison because he made a false statement to the FBI in 2006. Because during the production of this film, he hired a private investigator to illegally wiretap one of his producers, Charles Robin, because he was in a disagreement about what the type of film the film should be and was convinced that Robin was calling the studio to go against him. So he had him wiretapped and then lied to the FBI about it in 2006. And then, yeah, in 2013, had to do... A little stint in jail. I think he. I don't think he did quite a year. I think he just did some months. But um, a film production so fraught and bad that it led to wiretapping and federal prison. Wow! Wow! I don't. I, <laughs> I think I've got some deaths on some of mine, but I don't know about. I don't know about jail time. Maybe there, I think there should be jail time with some of the ones that I've got on him. <laughs> well, I just. It's the thing is as well. You know, the film. A lot of the films we talked about. They released most of them turned out to be good films and even one from the heart might not be good, but it has a stamp in history. Mm-hmm. You know, the it's got a bit of a cult and the people that know about it, 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 it left a mark. Rollerball 2002 left no mark on any yeah. culture. Yeah, like- it made no mark on the box office. It made no mark on culture, but it was still so bad that someone went to jail. And I just think, what was the point of any of it? Yeah, like I'm sure, I'm sure the original Rollerball has got like a cult following. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, like it does, it's a Jimmy yeah. Khan film. Like people are like, I'm sure that got a lot of like airtime when he passed away. Being like, yeah, yeah. Like, let's 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 go back to this. You can imagine that being like, I don't know, yeah. get like a boutique Blu-ray release and like people are like, yeah, I got a lot of fun this. Yeah. That is like violent. It's fun. Whereas yeah. this sounds, yeah, it's it's not jumping up my watch list. Let's just say that, Claire. No, stick to Die Hard. Amazing, amazing. Well. <laughs> Let's let's go back to 1999 now, and talk about oh the, what a time the man who killed Don Quixote. So a film that kind of the film that saw its kind of life in the early 90s, or yeah, uh, with Terry Gillingham wanting to wanting to make this film is it's kind of like a, a burning passion project in the way that Megropolis is for. I just feel like Terry Gilliam just. Just maybe needs to take a step back from his ideas, man. His, his brain's too big for what his hands can create. Well, this this, <laughs> this 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 film, and there is an amazing documentary called Lost in La Mancha that you, uh, people can check out. That's 
again, like many of these, started off as promo material for like the DVD release and then just turned into I don't know, a slow motion account of the wheels falling off of this production. So Terry Gillingham told the studio that the film would cost $60 million to make. And he kind of, he got, he got private investment for this. It was an in, indie film for like European investors. Um, they offered him $40 million. It was such like a passion project for him that he was like, you know what? I'm going to make it work. He had Johnny Depp on board after working with him in um, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas and approached Jean Rochefort to play Don Quixote. So Don Quixote is a kind of, yeah, a novel from like, I don't know, like 400 years ago about a guy who gets gets, reads too many romance novels and basically just, goes mad and decides he's going to be this character called Don Quixote who's going to, like, bring back chivalry and, like, go on these adventures and takes 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 along Sancho Pancho, like, his kind of... More men should do this, to be fair. <laughs> Very single, missing the chivalry. Where are the Don Quixotes? So, um, so yeah, he cast, he cast, cast uh, Jean Rochefort, who learnt English over seven months to be in this film. So, like, really dedicated to it. Like, he's a French actor, and he's like, I'm going to learn. I'm going to learn English to be in this film. Um, But things started going wrong quite early on in this production. So the pre-production started. They were kind of, like, scouting things out, getting costumes ready, getting sets ready. Neither of the principal actors could be be in spain madrid where they were filming uh and like yeah the wheels are starting to come off so they couldn't be there for pre-production they couldn't be there for costume fittings and they couldn't be there for rehearsals um in madrid they needed a soundstage they went and found basically the only soundstage they could find terry gilliam walks in clicks his tongue notices there is a massive echo in the soundstage. The last thing you want for your interior shots is for there to be an echo. You want to be able to record sound. You want it to sound dampened. You want it to to be able to manipulate it in post, right? You want to be able to do whatever you can. So that, that I think is a a sign of things ain't going to go right. And (laughs) the wheels of this fall off pretty quickly. So, Let's, so week one week out from production, uh, the actors are meant to arrive. John Rochford just doesn't turn up. Uh, no, he he was, didn't show up for a pre-production. He didn't show up for her, so he didn't show up for costume designs. Why would he turn up for the production? Well, he was he was going to arrive, and he had a pain in his abdomen, and was convinced he had prostate cancer, so he just didn't arrive at all so terry gilliam's like okay the next day he kind of gets in touch and it's like i've got a prostate infection and flies out so he's, he's he says I'll, I'll be okay i'll be okay to do it um the the location of like where they're gonna first shoot first day of shooting is a desert located four hours out of madrid 
just being there alone, the kind of expense just added more money to the budget. So that to pay for everyone to be put up in accommodation. They kind of had to like all these kind of add-ons and stuff. And they, the, but it was saving them money because they could have time to film on location back at the soundstage. They could be building the sets and kind of carrying on with some of the production design. Um, so they, <laughs> they go to film on the first day, a sequence of uh, Sancho Pancha kind of, is locked up and a gang of uh yeah they're on a chain gang and they manage to get the keys from the guard and set him free none of the actors knew the choreography they didn't go to rehearsal <laughs> well no no these are just like the, the 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 extras none of them none of them knew the choreography so terry gilliam pivots and says all right we can't do that we'll we'll, we'll film some of the dialogue scenes they go to film the dialogue out of nowhere. An F-15 fighter jet flies overhead. The loudest thing they've ever heard. Terry Gilling on set, like, I don't fucking believe this. Like, we can't record sound. He gets to the point, he's like, fuck sound. We'll just record what we can. And then hopefully in the close-up, we will be able to get the dialogue we need and match it up with the wide shots <laughs> so they do that and then next thing john rossford's horse decides it's not going to move so this is day one all of this is going wrong great start we move on to day two they're back out in the desert they think you know what we'll try again the sky is filled with dark clouds so everything they would have shot yesterday is not going to look the same today because of the clouds. So Terry Gillingham, always a resourceful man, says, what we'll do is we'll record close-ups. We can do that. We'll just, like, light the shit out of it. We'll be able to get close-ups of everyone. They go in for the close-ups. What happens next is the sky starts thundering. I'm starting to think that Coppola's idea of filming everything on a soundstage might have been correct. <laughs> thunder is not where it stops. The next thing they get, what comes with thunder, Claire? Lightning. Lightning. So they down tools for the day, and then a storm ensues. They wrap all of the gear in tarpauling, <sighs> and the rain comes and washes all of their gear away ruining ruining what they've got oh, or severely yeah, damaging it all. yeah not only oh, that is what runner made that decision oh no not only that is the rain changed like the look of the landscape so as it as it was like afterwards it just didn't look the same it was like a kind of white desert and it kind of looked brown and red like once it had rained so they just couldn't <laughs> film that day at all and then Day three comes. They take a skeleton crew out to another part of the desert. And what happens? The fighter jets come back. <laughs> Day five, the equipment dries out and the crew are ready. They try to film a scene between the two leads on horseback. They notice that John Rochford is uncomfortable on the horse. They can actually see him wince getting on and off the horse. the poor lad. 
so he <laughs> he he has flown straight back out to Paris to see his doctor. Uh, the first assistant AD, Phil Patterson, says changes need to be made. We need to really kind of like change what we're doing here or this film just really isn't going to work whatsoever. Um, and then this is, yeah, this is the end of the first week. The beginning of the second week, they have 60 members of the financing team coming to visit them on set. So Sorry, why are there 60 members of the finance team? No wonder you have no money. Well, I think it is I think it is the like the the financiers. So like people mm. who have put money in. There's right, just okay. like it's kind of spread out. It's one of those you know what I mean? So you're like gonna be sat there for is too many. You're gonna be sat there for five minutes at the beginning seeing uh like vanity cards at the beginning because there's so many yeah. like pots. <laughs> <laughs> um so like Terry Gillingham puts on like a dog and pony show for them, like to say, like, hey, here's Johnny Depp. We'll film right. We'll film a scene with him. We'll keep going. Um, and then things get, like, a little bit, yeah, like, a, a really start to go off the wall because the producers hear that John Rochford won't be back for at least a week. So their principal actor is not, is not able to return at all, like, for, for a week. putting your health first is important and is the right thing. And, Jean, we support you. Of course. And this is where, like, things get weird because with an indie film, if you have to stop, people still have to keep getting paid. Oh, sorry. I'm just going to drink again. Um, that's, that's mad because you would imagine it would be the other way around and that it would be a studio production that would have that. Because the studios kind of have a lot more control over everything mm. and can kind of, like, change things, whereas there are basically, like, investors from so many different places that they're, they've they signed up for something being, this this is this is the plan, like, we can't go over, whereas... Like, there's stu- contract-specific, like, contractor-contracts rather than salaries and things like that. So this is where it gets really good. This is where it gets really like messed up. Is they're 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 met by the completion guarantor who tries to help them, and moving forward on the film depends on John Rochford coming back. And it's now been said that he won't be back for at least ten days, and the insurance company say that they won't get any money for the time lost with John Rochford because it is an act of force majeure that he's ill it's nothing like that could yeah. Yeah. it's nothing to do with the set so he they won't be they 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 won't they won't be recouping any money from that they can't recast john rochford because him and johnny depp are essential elements in the budgeting of the film so if they recast him they have to completely re-budget the film so they are literally on their knees fucked uh they hope <laughs> they hope that he'll return in two weeks in that two weeks they still have to yeah they basically have to either keep people on pay but people start jumping ship it's mad that for apocalypse now our main actor had a heart attack and they managed to make it work for three weeks without him 
this film, someone has an infection and they're like, well, no movie. Well, it turned out he didn't have an infection. He had a double herniated disc. Okay, more respect for not being able to get on and off the horse. I was starting to think he was just being a bit wimpy, but I'd imagine that's incredibly painful whilst on a horse. Yeah, so 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 he he had that. They kind of the first AD leaves the production says, "I can't do this the way that it's going," and then the wall the wheels basically fall off. Like Terry Gillingham realizes this is not being made. So within within the space of Ten days, the film is folded. It is folded. It then takes him till two thousand and eighteen to actually make this film. From and throughout the way, there's so in two thousand nine he tries to make it again. Johnny Depp has been attached the whole time to make the film with him. He's obviously in like some of the height of his career, so he has to leave the Irish project. Time, yep. Ewan McGregor and Robert Duvall step in as like, um, so Ewan McGregor is the Johnny Depp role and Robert Duvall is the uh, John Rochford role. Finances fall apart on that. 2014, they try and go again. Gillingham retools the script for a modern day and says the film is about how films hurt people. September 2013, it is announced that John Hurt will star as uh, Don Quixote. August 2015, Amazon are announced that they will finance it. Um, Soon after, John Hurt is diagnosed with pancreatic cancer, so won't be able to do the film. March 2016, Ewan McGregor moves on and Jack O'Connell steps into the lead. At Cannes, uh, that same year, Gillingham states that Adam Driver is on board and now Michael Palin will pay Don Quixote. At the <laughs> same time, whilst they're trying to get this made, there is a guy called Paulo Bronco who lied about financing he had access to and was kind of signed on as one of the producers. And he tried to get Terry Gillingham to basically sign over all of the rights to him, that he had like complete rights to the film and like would basically swindle Terry Gillingham out of money um and it was meant to go into yeah it's meant to go into production September 2016 but just uh like the finances never turn up basically the money is So it's like, still unmade. Well, this is where we get to it. So <laughs> Terry Gillingham takes the film away from Paolo Bronco who tries to sue him in breach of contract. Amazon have left the project at this point because of Paolo Bronco. And then in March 2017, the film actually went into production and uh, Paolo Bronco sued Terry Gillingham and the production to stop the film playing at the Cannes Film Festival in competition. The ruling was too late, like a decision that the film couldn't compete at Cannes, but 
they were managed to screen it as the closing film for the festival. And it was and released. The production in- wrapped is more than, to say the words production wrapped. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the <laughs> film was released in 2018. It was very much like a a bit of a damp squib of a film. In that, like, I do remember it sort of, people were like, wow, he, he did it. Okay. Well, and, and there's reports of him saying like about the film, that like he just felt like he had to get it out of him. He referred to it as a tumor, basically. Mm-hmm. Like he had to just get rid of it. Like I think it was one of those things that just like plagued him. And it's like, I don't even care if it's going to be a good film anymore. I just need to, I just need to do it. Otherwise, like I can't move on with my life. And I think that's it's, it's how such it a shame. Out. But like I've heard again, I've not, I've not seen the film, but I'm vaguely aware of it in passing because of its infamy. Um, but I believe this is another one of those terrible productions that has a great documentary attached. Yeah, Lost in La Mancha is is fantastic. It's it's, it's it, yeah, it's it's really it's really great, and you get some <laughs> you get some amazing like Terry Gilliamisms, like kind of similar to when Francis Ford Coppola on the set of Apocalypse Now is talking about Martin Sheen's heart attack, and he's like why the fuck do people know? Like, 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 and I think Terry Gilligan says on the set of this, he's like, he's like, I don't want to know. I don't know after when we're fucked. Like I need to tell you that we're fucked. Like yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I shouldn't be told that we're fucked. Like I should be, I should be saying we're fucked. So yeah, it's, it's, it's very much that kind of film. Um, have you got, yeah. What? Let, let's, should we do, should we do, should we do one more each? It's getting yeah. late. It's getting, getting late. I'm going to go with a shorter, more modern one, just because I mentioned it right up the top of the show, so I feel like I could circle back to it. Let's talk about one of our most recent and modern production fiascos. Oh, yeah. Don't Worry Darling, 2002, directed by Olivia Wilde. So, in fairness to this film, they really almost made it to the finish line. So when the film was when the film was in production, the biggest drama was that Charlotte Booth dropped out and Harry Styles stepped in, and everyone was just letting it go along. People were excited. Olivia Wilde's follow up to Booksmart, um, just a Florence Pugh picture is always great. I believe it was originally a blacklist script, so people were always a little bit interested with that, and um, and the set pictures and the set design, stunning, and then kind of comes out towards the end of shooting that Olivia Wilde recently uh, split from Jason Sudeikis is perhaps in a romantic relationship with her co- her lead um, or co-lead Harry Styles. That raises some eyebrows. Jason Sudeikis's internet's husband, uh, Ted Lasso, you know, crew rise. And also like, I always just thought her and Jason made a nice couple. Yes. Yeah. And there's just the, the age difference. So there were some eyebrows raised, but realistically, people do in their personal lives when they're both in the age of consent and Harry Styles has a history of going for older women. We could just, you know, move that move that aside. And then as the film is wrapped and it's heading towards, you know, it's getting some festival slots and it's heading for a release date, people are starting to notice that Florence Pugh isn't doing much press, which is not normal for her. She's a very proactive star. She's a very proactive lead. She really kind of goes above and beyond for her films. And, you know, people are like, oh, well, you know, things happen. She was getting a lot of flack for her relationship with Zach Braff, so maybe she's taking a step back. Yeah, who knows, who knows. 
And then Olivia Wilde, I don't know if it's Olivia Wilde's fault. I don't know if it's Olivia Wilde's publicist's fault. But someone <laughs> somewhere, there was some press training missing or I'm not really sure what happened. But this is where the wheels start to fall off. And she starts to give interviews talking about the whole production and talking about how one of the best things and strongest things she did was fire Shia LaBeouf and cites that his methods were quite aggressive and it didn't work for her. She has a no assholes on set rule and it didn't go with the vibe and the, the role she's trying to create in the atmosphere on set. And this is where the problems start because it turned out Shia had some receipts and in <sighs> his mind, he was not fired. He walked away. Still not really being decided what the truth was there, but he shared some emails, some text messages, some videos. The video is very damning. Um, it, we get the infamous Miss Flo uh, moniker for Florence Pugh, and it definitely seems like Olivia Wilde is very dedicated to keeping Shia on set, mm -hmm. and that her, it, it, it gives the impression that her loyalties are very much with Shia and not with Florence in any way, shape, or form. This pours gasoline all <laughs> over those rumours that Florence is unhappy. Why isn't she promoting the film? Where is her presence? The only thing Florence has really said about the film is that she's unhappy with the marketing, that she feels like the marketing has reduced the film to the sex scenes and that the marketing is all about a scene in which Harry, uh, you know, performs a sexual act on her. And it she's, you know quite rightly so annoyed because the film is about much more than that then this is when the rumors the from what must sounded like a very closed set suddenly the doors start opening up and there are rumors of a bit of drama that crew were not happy when the relationship between wild and stars came out that there was favoritism given to him there's one um i know that you're a big fan of the ringer uh, the ringer podcast the um Ring a Dish have a great episode on all of the dramas, and one of the claims that they talk about there is that between because it was a pandemic production, cast and crew had been asked to not go home for families over the break, to really be safe, avoid contact with people as much as they possibly could to keep the production on target, mm -hmm. on schedule, on budget. And then that's like the week or two weeks after Christmas. Harry and Olivia are seen at a wedding holding hands, basically announcing their relationship and just, you know, our wedding in a pandemic. So <laughs> people weren't so happy. Um, and then we get these rumours that Florence is in some ways taking over direction. Yeah. There's rumours that Olivia was off with Harry, perhaps, you know, we don't know what they were doing or she just wasn't around. And that Florence and the first DP um, and the first AD, because they had the storyboards, they had the shots ready to go and the actors were rehearsed, they just started rolling filming and Olivia would turn up when she turned up and would just take over, which, you know, apparently put noses out joints, which is understandable. Then uh, we get to Venice Film Festival. Can't believe I wasn't there. What a fool <laughs> I am. I was there the year before and I missed all of this. Um, but you get Spitgate, which let's not go into, but Spitgate's a whole thing. Google it. It's fake. <laughs> it's just a weird optical illusion. It's very strange. Well, but there's the, a lot of drama. The great thing about this film is it's a f is, is it feels like a film. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> followed up, that's a perfect impression of Mr. Styles there, followed up by his also quote, I don't really know what I'm doing. Yeah. 
always what you want to hear at the very prestigious film festival about a very expensive film. What? Uh, Just, what a mess. Um, Florence refuses, oh, no, doesn't refuse, says that she cannot be at Venice Film Festival, cannot do any press because she's busy filming Dune 2, but Timothy Chalamet, who is the lead character in Dune, is at Venice Film Festival doing press. Um, but then you get, you know, Florence has some great pharma social media. She has the now infamous purple suit, Aperol Spritz, arriving in Venice whilst the press conference is going on. Well, we have her, she, like, makeup or, like, her it was stylist. Her stylist. Yeah, yeah, let's say, like, here's Miss Flo. Like, yeah, got just kind the of picture adding, on the red carpet. <laughs> adding, adding, adding fire to the flames, like, of yeah. kind of what's going on. Like, yeah, I, I, I was kind of on 10 Turks. I, like... I didn't particularly like this film, but like it's one film from 2020 that like I kind of semi own. Well, I've got a t-shirt is like an illustration of like the poster, if you know, like the two of their faces and it just says, darling, I'm worried. (laughs) Perfect. Perfect. (laughs) And we were all worried. Um, And but the, so the thing that strikes me about this is, again, like so much was held back. No one knew these problems were happening on set until the film was released. Mm-hmm. And then one of the things that came out after release were a t- the two actors of colour, Kiki Lane and Ariel Satchel, um, sorry, basically were edited out of the film. Apparently they filmed so much more. Their characters in the script were meant to have real importance and they are just basically not in the film. And I personally enjoyed it. I thought it was great fun. Um, I called it Black Mirror for the Barbie Girls. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought it was great. And it's funny because there are issues with the film and it doesn't quite work and the third act falls apart. But it's one of those ones that I don't think any of that is actually linked to the onset issues. I think it's actually just a script issue. I think the third act, and that's it. That's a rewrite of the original third act, which in my mind was actually worse. You can find it online. So it's really funny, but I do think that all involved had almost agreed to keep these on-set gripes locked under key because they just wanted the product to go out there and be seen as the product. But you know, loose link, loose lips sink ships. And once Olivia Wilde started doing that press, I think people started getting rubbed up the wrong way and all the skeletons came out of the closet mm-hmm. and more skeletons continue to come out of the closet even now. There's still constantly more things about what went on on the set. And it's fascinating that it doesn't, it doesn't really come across. I mean, Styles is somewhat weak in the film, depending on your view of him. I, I thought he did his best, but it was too big a role for him. Um, but, like, I don't think you can see at all that Florence and Wilde are fighting. Obviously, we don't know what scenes were actually directed by Wilde. Who knows? And that's an unsubstantiated rumour mm-hmm. also, so don't sue me. But I don't think any of the drama shows on the film. I think it just shows in the press, and it's it's kind of a unique one in that that regard. Yeah, I think there is, there is, there is an amazing tell-all to come out in the years mm-hmm. to come. I reckon. I reckon once the like dust dust has settled, and I think this one is really fascinating to look to what the future will be because, like we've seen with many of the directors we've talked about, so Francis Ford Coppola, Robert Altman, John Tin, and all all, all, all of these male directors, yeah. Terry Gillingham, after making these kind of flops, 
had a chance to bounce back. Yeah. It would be interesting to see. Like what one of the films we could have talked about on this is Ishtar, the Elaine May film, which basically just put her in permanent director jail. And yeah. like it would be interesting to see if Hollywood gives Olivia Wilde another chance to direct. Absolutely. And it's like, I was like, shout out to Billy Melissa, who, you know, during the time of all the promotion and stuff was really beating that drum of men have done so many worse things than all of this stuff, which isn't, is unsubstantiated, whether Mm -hmm. it's true or not, men have done proven documented things so much worse and time and time again, are given another check and another project and allowed to keep going. If the worst thing that she did was, got a bit goo goo eyed mm-hmm. and a bit distracted on set. Well let's look at the other films. Was she there with a suitcase of cocaine? Was she poisoning people, accidentally drowning them? Were they all doing PCP and killing buffaloes? No. She just sort of <laughs> fell in love with one of the biggest heartthrobs of the last ten years. Yeah. <laughs> it happens. Yeah, yeah. Well Let's let let's change gears, and I feel like I feel like this is a perfect one to end on because if Francis Ford Coppola is the kind of like the Godfather, for want of a better term, of the new <laughs> Hollywood generation, yeah, of course. The, the, this director is somewhat the kind of harbinger of doom of the new Hollywood generation. I think like he kind of snatched the keys away from people being given so much leeway in making films, and that is Michael Cimino's Heaven's Gate, released in 1979, 1980, or 1981, depending on which release we are talking about. This film has a very troubled production, a troubled editing process, and a very troubled release. Um, I need to get my checkbook out and start writing the Peter Animal Cruelty check now um yeah i think so so let's start off you saying about animal cruelty this is the film that is the reason that we have the no animals were harmed in the production of this film because of the ill treatment of animals on this and the humane society doing investigations into this film which we will get into but i'll give you a trigger warning now we will be yeah i'll I'll be i'll be can i mute <laughs> I'm sorry, Claire. Uh, so <laughs> let's start at the beginning of this. So Michael Cimino had just come off the back of making The Deer Hunter and was kind of like a wonderkin and won the the Academy Award for Best Director and Best Film for that film. Um, United Artists really wanted to kind of get into bed with him and like have a hit, basically. Uh, they had had a free film run of like Academy Award winners. So Annie Hall, Rocky and something else that escapes me but like i'd kind of been on a hot streak and michael chimino mm-hmm. beat them so they're like hey how can we have another hit let's get let's get chimino to direct a film so he comes to them with heaven's gate and gets a 1.5 million dollar advance with that money he has to secure his lead who is chris christopherson and arguments start on this pretty early between Michael Cimino and Stephen Bark, one of the like lead producers on this. Um, and the first argument they had was over Isabel Huppert as like being one of the female leads in this film. Stephen Bark said, like, oh, I don't know if she's like right for this. Like one of the weirdest things that they said was, Oh, is 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 she gonna look as sexy as Chris Christopherson and Christopher Walken 
And it's like, uh, yes, yes, she is. She is Isabel Huppert. Like those two are weird looking men. <laughs> yeah, I mean, everyone's got their kinks and all, but okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, Chimino but didn't believe in storyboarding the film. Um, he wanted the freedom to film the film in 360 degrees at any given moment, considering this is a film that is like on epic scale. There are scenes with thousands of extras in the background. And um, on April 16th, 1979, production started and he had promised them, bearing in mind, he had said, yes, we will have this film ready for Christmas. 1979 do you think he gets it claire do you think he makes it i'm gonna go no he does not (laughs) (laughs) so one week after yeah this was one week after getting the award for the deer hunter um one of the people who was supposed to be in this film as one of the like key players in this was william willem dafoe who during a lighting setup laughed at one of the like an extra made a joke and willem dafoe laughed michael cimino fired him on the spot and you can see willem dafoe for one shot in this film it's like the teacher's rule first day of like term one kid makes a mistake give them detention to show the rest you mean business (laughs) so let's get into some of the 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 craziness within the stuff that Michael Cimino did. So, oh, so all of yeah. So the film starts off with a load of hats being like thrown and like, uh, and they had to have all of those hats shipped over from England and handmade. So there, we're talking thousands of hats. So again, budget what? is. Because they were like they were they were top hats, like period specific top mm-hmm. hats that weren't made anymore. And there was like a factory. It's like England or somewhere in Europe that kind of had had to fire One up woman. the factory. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And like get them made. Um Michael Cimino personally auditioned three hundred horses for this film. How many did he hire? I'm not entirely sure, but he auditioned <laughs> Sorry, three hundred. Give- um, he killed four. Um okay uh he had personally a t- at his own hands no but the through the production um there were yeah it had a train rerouted so it could be on set there were six weeks of weapons dance and roller skating lessons for the cast he sent all the women who work in a bordello in this film to live in a brothel for a week well, i don't think that's legal yeah uh at one point not only was he like a director he was also a painter and and like he did like architectural design he noticed that a set wasn't right so instead of just moving like it was like it needed to be six feet wider the street instead of pulling down half of the set he made them pull down the entire set and like rebuild it which cost the production a million dollars famously this film was five days into shooting and was six days behind on the schedule (laughs) (laughs) um 
Shamina at one point was nearly fired and replaced, like, it, but he called the studio's bluff. Um, the film, yeah, uh, the film was costing United Artists $200,000 a day to make. It was originally budgeted for uh, $11.6 million and ended up costing $30 million. Um, Stephen Bark at one point called Chimino's bluff because he kept using this whole thing of like, oh, I can go to any other studio to get this film made. So he called his bluff one day and he actually approached every other studio and said to Michael Cimino, nobody else will take you. You either need to, like, get in line or, like, we'll re-budget the film at $25 million and we'll, like, we'll get it done. And you need to, like, every day there's going to be an audit into what you're doing and there's, like, there's stipulations of, like, you cannot, you cannot fuck around anymore. But like the I'd type love to of be things the that, auditor on that set. Like sorry, sorry, you've had two glasses of wine. The things that Michael Cimino was doing, so he was basically painting scenes. He would spend most of the day hand picking extras to be in the back and placing them to kind of like making these beautifully lavish shots and like kind of everyone kind of looks period specific and kind mm-hmm. of looks like a lived in character but would take that level of detail over every yeah. specific little thing that kind of, uh, at one point they tried to fire Michael Cimino and get on David Lean to take over the production. He said, no fucking way. <laughs> uh, when, when they gave him these stipulations of how to work, Michael Cimino told one of his like closest producers on the film, tell the studio what they want to hear and do what we want anyway. COVID rules. With Michael Cimino's advance, we can only we can only imagine this. He bought land in Montana where this film was filmed. Stephen Bark realized whilst they were filming, why are we spending so much on renting the land? They found out that Michael Cimino was charging them an extortionate rate to rent land off of him so he was getting money back on them rent <laughs> you know what I, I, i'm starting to respect this the guy. hustle's like, real right the hustle is yeah. real um, starting to respect what is kind of like fascinating about this so all of this is happening throughout fr- throughout 1979 it managed to stay out of the press how you like it claire nobody mm-hmm. knew what was going on mm-hmm. how sets you know vegas rules at this point as well, they had they had pushed back the release date by a year. That's how kind of far back they were. And um, in September 1979, uh, there was a guy called Les Capet who used to write for The New Yorker, like had moved to Montana for like a, an easier life, had tried to get an interview with Michael Cimino to write a puff piece for like a local newspaper, just kind of like, about the film, filming in the local area. How's it going? Yeah. Uh, he was, like, rudely denied by the production. They were, like, really arrogant about it. And, like, we ain't... No. Uh, so, Les Capet took it upon himself to get hired as an extra on the film and ended up writing an expose called Shoot Out at Heaven's Gate, 
where he listed off the following things that were going wrong on set. There were dangerous working conditions. Extras were falling off of wagons and horses. Extras were getting crushed feet by horses. There were 16 violent injuries. People were passing out because of all of the smoke that was used in interior scenes. Um, The makeup department had remarked how violent the film was and said that anybody, like, because there were families basically in the film. They were using local people, like whole families, to be extras. They said, like, do not take your kids to see this film when it is released. Like, it is is atrocious. Um, He actually broke laws in Montana. They were using real slaughtered animals in an area of Montana where it is illegal due to bear attacks. So they were basically leaving, like, slaughtered animals as set dressing um, that would have just brought, like, basically waiting for bears to attack. The treatment of animals on this was terrible. Um, Horses were actually bled out so they could use the blood to douse actors in blood for scenes instead of using fake blood. They used trip wires to, like flip over horses something that, that was like unfortunately is an old school old old school thing yeah. that like was outlawed by this time that hadn't been done for years and they did it um the humane society came on to the set and declared that yeah four horses were killed and many more were injured the horses that they bled out as well were um no painkillers were administered or anything like that they just kind of just kind of like did a nick on them and got them. I no longer respect the hustle. There is a shot in this film of a cart and a wagon, like a horse-drawn cart, blown up by dynamite. So there's a horse being blown up by dynamite on screen that is actually in the film on screen. Um, There is depictions of actual cockfights, decapitated chickens... Cows were disemboweled to create intestines for actors. Um, yeah, as I said, this is where the, the Humane Society called upon the whole, like, no animals were harmed in the production because of the animals that were harmed in the production of this. And it, it's so repulsive because it's very difficult when you look at films from, like, the 20s and the 30s because the medium was still new and people didn't know what they were doing and they didn't have the resources and they didn't have the skills and they didn't have the mindset. But this is the late 70s and the early 80s. They knew how to make fake blood. They knew how to make fake intestines. This is sheer laziness and arrogance. Mm -hmm. So think like that's just production. Things don't end there. Michael Tremino's kind of... Did he start kicking all the dogs at the premiere? Did he just walk out into the street and be like... (laughs) You know, dogs deserve to die too. No, he didn't do that, but he presented... I think you would feel like you, you'd feel this is pretty bad. So one of the things he decided on this film is he wanted to shoot more film than Francis Ford Coppola had shot on Apocalypse Now. Oh. <laughs> didn't manage it. He only did 1.2 million feet of film, but was over 220 hours of footage he'd, uh, he'd filmed. He, um, <laughs> he, he, yeah, he presented the film to the, to the studio heads at a five hour cut. The final battle sequence of this film was 90 minutes alone. Jesus Christ. 
Does um, anyone care that much? They told him to go away and re-edit it ready for the premiere. The studio did not watch the film until the premiere, Ooh. at which point, like, everyone hated it. People, like, Chimino was asking, like, people, oh, why is nobody drinking the champagne? And people were like, we hated the film. There were walkouts in the premiere. Mm. People hated it. It was due up for general release. And uh, in... Uh, yeah, in 1980, and then within two weeks was pulled from theatres at Michael Cimino's request and said, I can I can edit the film again, like, please let me do it. Sort he, of annoys me that it was at his request that he was so arrogant that he's like, oh, people don't like it enough, I'll take it back and redo it. It's like, no, hon, you fucked up. Suffer. So he, he re-edited it, and then it was released in April... Um, 1981 in like... Do people like that version? It's like a two hour and 18 minute cut. So <laughs> a considerably shorter. But I think within all of the footage, people say there is a great film. Mm-hmm. Like you can get, you can, that yeah, I think Criterion have released it. There are many kind of editions of the mm-hmm. film. Like it is one of those. And it, I think it is the thing of... It's... It was made, like, in horrible conditions. There is great stuff in it. Like, you, undeniably, like, some of the kind of... The right editor can pull out something. And some of the imagery in it as well. Like I was saying, like, with the extras, like, you could kind of freeze frame it and, like, make a painting. It would be like a painting. But it's kind of, does the ends just... Do, do the means justify the end, basically, with this? And it, 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 Michael Cimino makes it very difficult to to make you uh, agree with him. And I think what is fascinating, yeah, is he is basically he arguably killed new the new Hollywood generation mm. by like uh, this kind of folly, like the grandest yeah. of follies, fucked and it doing for everyone. doing it on American soil as well. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's like Coppola got away with it because he was abroad. And yeah, 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 yeah. No People watching. <laughs> Yeah, construction workers were dying. But it's the Philippines. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it still happens in certain countries, which I won't say for fear of legal. <laughs> but um, <laughs> yeah, so yeah, Michael. Yeah, so that's that's Heaven's Gate and the kind of furore around that. Like, but people people went to town with it. And I think it does kind of draw back to to Coppola, and I think like something. I will say it won a Golden Razzie for worst director. And whilst I have a mixed relationship with the Golden Razzies, they're fucking place. Sounds like a twat. <laughs> they, because um, I think what happened with Heaven's Gate is people went back after that film came out and re-reviewed The Deer Hunter on the basis yeah. of, like, that film. But a lot of it seemed to be their disdain for him, him. and stuff like that, which are like... I think draws in that question of the art versus the artist in some way, but then at the same time, this predilection we have, like we were saying, like not knowing about the set, in this case, probably for the best that we do know the kind of ills that went on. Yeah, because there are now legal things in place to stop stuff yes. like that from happening again. So there were, you know, yeah, it's good that we know what went on. But at the same time, like... Should we be going back to his previous work and saying they're pieces of shit now because he did something we didn't like? 
maybe not. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's kind of, it's kind of, it's kind of fascinating. I think, like, I don't know, like, with obviously everything we talked about and looking at like troubled productions, do you think like there is an element that like the I don't know the media like not in this kind of conspiratorial way, but like are out to get Copla with this kind of like. Yeah, with, with, with everything that's gone on with Megaropolis, obviously he came out and said, it's fine, like, like this was all a part of the plan. Obviously, firing entire departments isn't great, but he's but done it before. He, like. and, and that's the thing, when you look into it, it sounds like he, he knew he was over budget and they said that they're changing the way in which they're doing the effects. So it completely makes sense that they'd have to remove the effects team. Because if they're doing a different way to do the effects, well, what if that team don't know how to work with the, that product, yeah. that software? Um, I think the issue, because we've talked about quite a lot of like older films, the issue with modern films is that people like me, people like you, people like lots of our friends, we all want to be film journalists and we all want to talk about films and we all have a deeply unhealthy relationship to talking about films. And we've created this whole industry of film journalism and film news and mm-hmm. showbiz news and people need clicks and people need information. So clickbait plus any whiff of thing is a click, it's a Google, it's an SEO you know, yeah, beautiful. Yeah, yeah. It's a buzzword. Stuff. It's a keyword, yeah. right? Yeah. So I think that's the main one with me- Megapolis. Megapolis. <laughs> Megapolis. Megapolis. Did it, guys? It only took two hours and eighteen minutes. Megapolis. <laughs> um, but like, even when we look back at things like Apocalypse Now and stuff like that, I think it's still back in those days. Was also it just it wasn't about clicks. It was getting selling columns Mm -hmm. selling space and Coppola made a brilliant name for himself and he was a household name and even taking it all the way to now Olivia Wilde if that was just any old female director or and any old guy not Harry Styles and not someone who was also a famous actress turned director that wouldn't have got half the press but when you get a big name involved you're looking for that headline you're looking for that you know five second distraction to get the money get the clicks get the newspaper sales and Hollywood's fascinating it's why we're still you know we have films from the 1920s looking at the Hollywood system and we have films in this year mm-hmm. like Babylon talking about the Hollywood system it's a fascinating beast because it's always going to look different from the outside than it does inside yeah definitely like yeah even, even like well like a, a film that Babylon owes a massive debt to is singing in the rain which like kind of does the same thing looking yeah. into like the hollywood system and like the the studio system of the day and like kind of how corrupt it was and like how weird it was and it's kind of interesting that we kind of keep moving forward and like the way films that are made the way films are made and the way films are talked about it, like there's an argument even we're talking about like the the journalist first for blood Mm-hmm. for like Francis Ford Coppola, maybe me and you doing this conversation is a part of the problem as well, right? <laughs> In the words of Taylor Swift, it's me. Hi, I'm the problem, it's me. <laughs> yeah, followed by uh, one of the weirdest lines in music I've heard in a long time. <laughs> hey, sometimes everyone is a sexy baby, all right? Okay. And it is awkward when you're not. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> Amazing. Well, thank you so much, Claire, for coming on this grand of uh, follies with me. Uh, where can people keep up to date with yourself and everything you're doing with W Rated? You, you guys seem to. You guys always seem to be having some production issues. You're always kind of, <laughs> you're always kind of delayed. What's 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 happening with the pod? We have a lot of production issues because uh, my wonderful, amazing co-host Daisy is the most busy human being I've ever met. And it turned out I actually got quite busy too because I got a new job, which keeps me busy. Um, and we just stopped recording. We are back to recording. So you can find me at Claire Ellen Hope and you can find W Rated on Twitter at W Rated Pod and on all good podcasting platforms. And as we speak, we are in the phase of recording our Road to Razzies season which is a number of films that could be considered follies. These are the films that have been voted the worst of the year. We are looking at them to see what what did the Razzies get wrong? What isn't that bad about them? What can we celebrate about these mm-hmm. films? So we're not going in looking to rip things apart. Um, so they'll be releasing in the next few weeks. We're going to be releasing almost an episode a day to make nice. up for the fact that we have not released an episode in over six months. Nice. <laughs> will, there, will, will, there, will there be a uh, Justice for Ryan Kira Armstrong episode talking about the the, the, the mishap of, of, of that whole ordeal? Yes, the, fire, the, the film that she was nominated for, Firestarter, was nominated for two awards, so they have rescinded her nomination, mm-hmm. but it is still nominated for another award, so we are going to talk about that and the recent day, the, the rescinding of the award. She's, and... pretty, she, she's pretty great. She was recently in The Old Way, the, the new Nicolas mm-hmm. Cage film, playing his daughter, and mm-hmm. she's fantastic. And I know that I kind of ended up going down a rabbit hole, and she's going to be in the new sam ishmael film with um julia roberts julia roberts yeah and i was like she's 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 getting up there so like she's one to watch no absolutely so yeah we will definitely be talking about that um so far we've recorded an episode on blonde on uh, robert's mechas pinocchio and another film that i've already forgotten um so yeah but i have not edited or released them but they'll be coming soon amazing well again thank you so much for coming and making some copla connections with me i one day will watch godfather maybe Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. 
This podcast is presented by the Breadcrumbs Collective, home of the Pod Charles Cinecast, Caged In Coppola Connections, A Drip Town Limery, Maine, Franchised, and many more to come. Our shows are all presented ad-free and made possible by listeners like you. Please support our shows by subscribing, leaving ratings and reviews, and becoming patrons at patreon.com. If you'd like to learn more about Breadcrumbs, head over to breadcrumbscollective.com. Breadcrumbs. It's more than a podcast network. It's family.